Okay, I think we're live. Good morning, everyone, um, especially to my colleagues on the screen and everyone who's joining online. Today is August 5th, 2023. It's Saturday as usual, and we have another edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. Um, today, we're going to first talk about Trump's indictment, federal indictment, his third, um, which happened this week, and what it says about the domestic situation, um, and also talk a little bit about polls that came out around the 2024 presidential election. Um, and then we're going to um, have a discussion that we uh, discussed briefly last week, but actually have the full discussion this week, which is a review by a member of the Saturday Free School, Chishman Raju, who's on this, who's joining us today from India. Um, his review of Martin Wolf's recent book which I'm really excited about. Um, so we'll hopefully we'll get to maybe re read parts of the review. Um, we can see what makes sense and then also discuss the review. Um, and then finally, we'll report back on some free school initiatives and events, including a science reading group and um, just a short little update later um, on an event in Chicago. So without further ado, I'm going to pass things to my worthy colleague, Dr. Anthony Montero, who's going to lead us <laughs> in talking about Trump. Okay. Are you on mute? Thank you. No. Thank you very much, uh, Emily Dong of the Massachusetts Dongs, you know, <laughs> by way of Beijing. But anyway, it's good to see you all. Um, I just, I'll just say a few things. I want to talk about this uh, latest indictment of Donald Trump. Uh, and anyone that thinks you can sit on the sideline of being different to this uh, in the interest of building a so-called united front against fascists uh, and the target being Donald Trump as the uh, head fascist uh, in the country today, anybody that thinks that they can be indifferent to what the federal government and the deep state are doing uh, need to think again. This is a very serious matter. Even the commentary in the mainstream media is saying this has never happened before in the history of this country, uh, which means, which is another way of saying this is perhaps the greatest political crisis in the history of the country. And I think we should approach it that way. Um, uh, this latest indictment, uh, the 45 pages, which I've not read all of it, but it seems uh, merely to be a summation of what the January 6th uh, investigative committee of the US Congress carried out last uh, fall, uh, which uh, was a charade and a show trial uh, where only one side presented evidence, uh, and it provided talking points uh, or propaganda points for the ruling class. Well, this indictment is nothing new. It's just that all over again. Uh, most people that are serious about uh, matters of the constitutional law, this is a, uh, a federal case, which means it is brought under uh, constitutional law, uh, not the law of a single state. Uh, those indictments were, for example, uh, the thing in New York 
uh, it'll be the case in Georgia if the DA in Fulton County uh, uh, brings an indictment, which she said she will. Uh, this and the Mar-a-Lago uh, case are federal cases which come under constitutional law or federal law. The Mar-a-Lago one uh, will ultimately boil down to a question under the Espionage Act of 1919. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that many people have even been indicted under that act, all of these over a hundred or so years. Uh, but Trump is being charged in the end under the Espionage Act. Uh, and uh, by the way, you know, it's about taking so-called classified documents from the White House to his estate in Mar-a-Lago, Florida. Uh, the point is, uh, and this is a matter of interpretation of law, etc., whether the president has the final authority to declassify documents. If not him, then who has that authority? And it's unclear. I think it is clear on the one side that there is federal law that says he can do it, uh, but if not the highest executive authority of the country, then who has the authority to declassify documents? Uh, either he personally or in his name, that is the White House or people operating on his behalf. So that's a federal case under the Espionage Act. This is a uh, another criminal case uh, which is being brought having to do with the January 6th events. Neither indictment seems to be persuasive outside of uh, its politics. In other words, it is direct interference in the 2024 election it is to limit speech and campaigning uh, of one of the candidates, uh, by many accounts, the leading candidate, both in the Republican Party and in the general election. This is horrendous. It is alarming. Uh, and to, to show where the American people are, the more he is indicted, the stronger he becomes in the polls. And this is saying, I think, that the 2024 election will be a contest between the people and the state. Now, people are gonna say, oh, how can you say that? You're No. The people are not a single thing. They don't all think alike. You know, they have different ways of approaching the world and the political crisis in the country. And of course, Donald Trump is running as a Republican but he's more than that and everybody knows he's more than that. 
But polling data, uh, well, I'm not going to talk about showing him up against DeSantis or, or Biden right yet. Polling data that goes back and, re and is repeated over and over and over again over the last six, seven years. One, 80% of the people feel the country is going in the wrong direction. That's context. 60% or more say the government does not represent them, their interests. This is context. 25% of them, incredible polling, say that they would support violence to change the government. This type of data, this type of opinion, has never existed like this in this country. So when we talk about a crisis of legitimacy, a question of whether or not the ruling class can rule, can they govern the country? Large parts of the American people are saying, we are fed up with this ruling elite and how they have governed the country. And don't feed us this garbage about how well the economy is doing because we don't see it and we don't feel it. This is where we are. And to remove the greatest challenge to the rule of the ruling elite, or at least the way that rule is configured at this time, to remove him from the presidential race by criminalizing him on the most flimsy charges. This is a witch hunt. People talk about Oppenheimer. Oh, that was child's play compared to this. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you literally have to go to the anti-communist witch hunts of the 1950s and 60s, which, by the way, forever politically changed this country. We have not recovered from it. And I think if there's one good thing that uh, maybe that comes out of the Oppenheimer film, it is it, what it is showing. They had to silence people not just Oppenheimer, the execution of the Rosenbergs, not mentioned in the film, the criminalization of figures like Robeson and Du Bois, for one purpose, to build a hydrogen bomb and missiles to threaten the whole damn world. And we're still living under that Damocles sword. We are closer to nuclear war than we were at the time of the Manhattan Project, the first uh, hydrogen bomb and all of that. We are closer to it. Therefore, people say, well, you know, you get people who say, well, look, the American people are incapable of changing the political situation in this country. Therefore, we must look outside of the country. No. One of the major centers of the struggle against the plutocratic, oligarchic, imperialist ruling elite of this country is right here in this country. And they admit it. The ruling elite admits it. Richard Haas admitted it 
when he said that the greatest national security threat to the United States is not Russia or China or anywhere else. It is the United States people, which is another way of admitting that we are in a civil war already. We're just not shooting at each other, but we're in a, what they some call it a cold civil war. But it is a civil war where the ruling elite are mobilizing all of their resources to go after the people. They cannot trust the people. They, they keep, you know, I, I look at these opinion polls and they talk about the people as voters, as registered voters. Well, I'm a registered voter, but I'm damn more than that. I live my life in spite of elections in spite of politicians, and everybody else does. All of these poor people, irrespective of race, creed, nationality, we are united in our misery. We are united in our uncertainty, our fears, and that's across the board. So don't pigeonhole me. I'm a Democrat. That one's a Republican. This is it. No, no, no. We are part of this people and this nation, and we are in a crisis out of which must come a new nation, a new nation. This is why what is going on here is perhaps as important, if not more so, than anything going on in the world. This is the hegemon, the alleged hegemon, the dominant imperialist power. What happens to it will affect what happens in the world. If this ruling elite is weakened, let's say not brought down, but incapable of doing what it has done in the past. We can't forget Libya, the threats in, in Niger, Niger, the war in Ukraine, the threats against China. If the people of this country say that we reject your rule. It frees humanity. It is our great contribution to humanity. And that's what it's about. All of this talk about our democracy. Our democracy? Well, what side are you on since it's your democracy? Nobody asked the people whether they wanted to spend $150 billion in Ukraine while food aid is being cut off. Nobody asked the people whether or not they supported crushing a railway worker's strike. Nobody asked the people about important issues. You know, Nobody. So what democracy? 
This is why, you know, we talked about it all the time. This left has so insinuated itself, so connected itself to the ruling elite of this country that they have become completely worthless. And they're worse than opportunists. They're cowards. If they were opportunists, you could maybe debate with them. But with a coward, there is not even a discussion. And they show you where they're coming from. Attacking Cornell West because he would dare to run on a third party because he could, quote, influence the black vote. The black vote has already been influenced. <laughs> black folk have already decided. And that's why the Philadelphia election, primary election, was so important. Leftists, if you want to study something, if you want to do empirical-based thinking, if you want evidence, come here to Philadelphia. The last mayoral primary in May. You want to know what Black people thought? 75% or more of registered Black Democrats did not even come out to vote. That's what Black people think. Are you worried about black men who might vote for Trump? Well, they're going to vote for Trump. They're going to vote for him. And it has nothing to do with Cornell West. They were going to either not vote or vote for Trump even before Cornell West entered the race. These attacks upon Cornell West, and I just like to mention two. The, um, the editor of Jacobin, Bashkar Sankara, and he's also uh, the president or something of the Nation Foundation, the foundation that supports and finances Nation Magazine, one of the oldest formerly progressive magazines back in the days. He and another guy from the nation, in an interview that I listened to, were talking about why Cornell West should have run in the Democratic primary. He would have been heard better uh, and could have served the interests of democracy. Well, wait a minute, hold it. Uh, so I guess you all are supporting Robert F. Kennedy or maybe Marion Williamson. Since you are so, uh, interested in people being heard. Well, I ain't heard a lot from them, from the mainstream media. Uh, so if that's the question, well, you got two opposition candidates. Why don't you support one of them and Cornell West? If you are about democracy, and you know that the corporate Democrats, they call them corporate, well, the Democrats, the, who controls the Democratic Party, the corporate, not AOC, not Bernie Sanders, you see what I'm saying? Not the squad, none of them people. It's money. So if you're concerned with forcing Biden to the left, starting with war and peace, and a peace economy 
and a war on poverty. Well, the last time I looked, Marion Williams and RFK Jr. were closer to what you say you're about than Biden is. So it's not about Cornell West running as a Green Party candidate and what that means for the black vote. Again, I want to say black people have already decided. Cornell West ain't going to influence nothing. They decided and they showed what their decision was in the primary here in Philadelphia in May. Study it if you want to know what they're thinking. Almost the repeat happened in Chicago. I don't know what the numbers are, but something very similar. And it will happen all across the country. Black people, although not demonstrating it in the way that the white working and, and lower middle class does through Trump, the outrage at the ruling elite is as intense different expressions of the same sentiment. Then there's the Communist Party of the United States. It should abandon the name and never allow the name of Henry Winston and the great fighters for the working class ever come through their lips again. They are traitors and cowards what they stand for is a complete capitulation, not just to the liberals or the Democrats, but to the war makers. The war makers on the Korean Peninsula. There have been more and more dangerous nuclear military exercises around and off of the Korean Peninsula directed at North Korea than at any time since 1953. Biden, oh, but the Korean people don't matter. Okay, you're back to uh, Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer. Oh, we'll just drop a bomb on them because they're Asians as a demonstration of what we will and can do. Asia cannot be ruled out of this equation. The only place where atom bombs were ever used were in Asia. The only countries that have ever faced a direct threat are Asian countries, Korea and Vietnam. And now this guy, Biden, his administration, the most dangerous warlike administration in history. And you concerned about Cornell West? You cowards. They've had, since Cornell has announced, this is the Communist Party, at least four hit pieces. Some of it, they, they act like they're clowning Cornell. Oh, he's a nice 
intellectual and academic, but he is really supporting objectively the rise of fascism. He's a spoiler. Oh, a spoiler? Let's interrogate that concept. Is raising the consciousness of the people spoiling them? Oh, so your role is to manage the people, not free the people. And don't tell me about the AFL-CIO leadership coming out supporting Biden right after he announced. Oh, really? Okay. 6% of workers in private industry are organized. You have given billions of dollars to the Democratic Party over the last 30 years. Well, why have you not been as successful in organizing workers? Because you don't care about them. Let's keep it 100. You are a labor aristocracy. You are fat cats who the ruling class has given the assignment of managing the working people, not educating them, not raising their consciousness, not, not organizing them. That means nothing. The working class majority now is in the Republican Party or independent. They have abandoned the Democratic Party. In fact, the Democratic Party is in all of human history, the party of wealth. It is the party of the wealthiest people that have ever lived on this planet. And then they're hangers on uh, who have college degrees. <laughs> Working people and the poor have left these people, have left that party, are disgusted with them. We're in a crisis, and the reason I'm, I just wanted to talk about these indictments, this is, this is a political thing. We have never seen it. We have never seen it. At this point, Trump, according to polls, is running even with Biden. There's every reason to believe that given the enthusiasm of the Trump voters, of people in the Trump movement, that Trump will defeat Biden. People say, well, isn't Trump the person that gave us the conservative Supreme Court majority, which overturned Roe and overturned affirmative action? And I say, yes, he did. But that's not the issue. The system could have operated normally, none of this uh, indictment and stuff, in spite of those things. So the question is not that. Although I would say parenthetically, when it came to Roe versus Wade, that should have been legislated, there should have been laws at the federal level to protect 
choice. They didn't do it. And so it was always on a knife's edge uh, what would happen because it only was a matter of how long it would take for a conservative non-row majority to get on the Supreme Court. And of course, according to the way movements develop, that could be changed. However, and with affirmative action, that's uh, a different thing qualitatively. You talk about programs, you're not talking about uh, rights in the way that we're talking about rights when it comes to Roe v. Wade. So people say, well, hey, you, you're going to vote for the guy that gave us that. You're going to vote for the guy who believes in trickle-down economics, et cetera, et cetera. I say, well, no, I'm not voting for that guy for those reasons. I'm voting for the greatest existential threat humanity has faced, and that's nuclear war. All Trump had to say, and, it's, and he's honest about this, I will run as the peace candidate. Give me 24 hours, I will end the war in Ukraine. I don't want war with China. That's all. This represents, and it's not rocket science, a rupturing of the war consensus that was uh, put together after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It, and it has to be broken. It is the US ruling elite. It is our responsibility, however difficult and contradictory, the path to weakening this ruling elite might be. We're not asking for an alliance of the pure, of the convinced, of all of us who think alike. We're not, because we're not Trotskyites. Let's keep it real. We're asking for an alliance of a, based upon a very basic thing, life on this planet. That's what we're calling for. But we're not, you know, anybody that's worth anything in politics, I'm not waiting on, on uh, Trump or Cornell or RFK or Marianne Williamson or anybody else. We have our own ideas that in the throes of a crisis, we would like to share with the people of this country. We said it, a peace industrial economy a peace economy, undo the military industrial economy, an anti-poverty program, which includes anti-drug policies. We're talking about education of children year round for children that this society and this ruling class has abandoned to an entertainment Hollywood complex 
which feeds to children messages that their parents have to work 24-7 to protect their children from. A peace industrial economy, an anti-poverty economy, a, a cultural revolution, a renaissance of art and music that centralizes the people. That's what we're for. But in this election, bring down this war administration. Bring it down. And don't tell me about democracy and fascism. You are cowards. There's a point where patience runs out. There is a point where you look at all of these people talking and you say, who are these children? Who are they? And who are these arrogant, infantile children who have no idea what they're dealing with or what we're dealing with at this time? Trump represents an antidote to this warmongering elite. He is not the answer at all. He is part of it. The people that show up to his rallies are only a small snippet of the broader support that he has. He resonates with them, with people, beyond the, the rallies. The rallies are pretty much made up of politically active, although thousands of them, people, many of whom are further to the conservative side than they are to the progressive side that is the engine, by the way, it is, a, it is progressive instincts that are the engine of the Trump movement. I don't know that he fully understands that yet. It is a progressive, as I say, a wheel within a wheel. A dynamic within a dynamic. And that is why I think we are right. A new people can be birthed out of this crisis. Not inevitable, a lot of hard work, a lot of convincing, a lot of talk, a lot of thinking and rethinking and criticism and self-criticism. But don't rule the people out before they've even had a chance to enter the fight. And you know, the way I read it, they're, they're chomping at the bit. Soon as they find leaders that they can really trust, they will fight and they will sacrifice. They will. And they will sacrifice in the name of a new people. Just give them the chance. 
And I don't think the ruling class in this moment of desperation, and they are desperate, they can return to the 60s and the regime of assassinations. Robert F. Kennedy is right. Those assassinations, Medgar Evers, John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy, if you want, throw in Fred Hampton and the Panthers and other people, but those national leaders, was a coup d'etat. It was. Eliminate, physically eliminate the opposition. And they did. People don't easily recover from that type of takedown. It, it created a cloud of terror and fear in the country. That's why Huey Newton and them, when they stood up, they stood up against fear and intimidation and terror. Symbolically, that's what it was. When Angela Davis stood up and then went after she was released, went around the country fighting to say, don't be afraid. If we fight, we can win. That's what they were saying. But nonetheless, the people were afraid. They were terrorized. You watch a president assassinated and then you lied to for the next 60 years about what happened and everybody know they're lying to us? The leading candidate running for president in 68 who forced the sitting president out of the race and having to resign from running? Robert F. Kennedy, you assassinated him on the night, the evening of the greatest victory of his campaign in California. Brazen and ruthless. The assassination of Martin Luther King war of a fight against poverty, a fight against war, the bombs that drop in Vietnam explode in Detroit. Killed him. We have to understand what this ruling class did, but is that an option today? That would be a move of enormous desperation. We don't know what it would set off. Already the country is in something that looks like civil war without the bullets flying. The sides are locked in, locked and loaded as they say. And when the numbers reach into the tens of millions, you don't have enough police. Your army ain't big enough. In fact, most of your army might be on the side of the people. You don't have enough weapons. The ruling class, and this is where the strategic questioning 
And by the way, just parenthetically again, you know, like I said, they're worse than opportunists. They're cowards. And then the question is, have they forgotten how to think? It's not like we're saying anything so extraordinary. It's all right in front of us all the time. You know, it's all very apparent. The question, however, and this was the what Lenin said, he called it a revolutionary situation. We're not in a revolutionary situation, maybe a pre-revolutionary situation. It's hard to tell. But Lenin defined a revolutionary situation as one where the ruling class cannot rule in the old way and the people will not rule, allow themselves to be ruled in the old way. Demanding, hence, a transfer of power from one class to the next, to another. Well, we might not be there, but this ruling elite is forced, and it's as really it's forced itself into a corner with these indictments. The ruling elite will be forced to compromise at least, at least if they lose this election, and I hope they do, I hope Biden is punished, punished politically. If they lose, a new political moment exists in the country, a new alignment of forces from the people up, they will be forced into retreat you, you see the equation, you see the geography, architecture of it. It's very simple. It's very simple. Either they win or they don't win. I'm betting that they will not win. And thus a new political alignment with new possibilities, with new ways of thinking. The election that defeats Biden, perhaps, hopefully, will create conditions for the people to then move forward, to think anew, to realign. I can already imagine it here in Philadelphia. I can already, I can already see it people will think and begin to talk to each other in new ways. So I say all that to, just to conclude. Don't believe the hype about these indictments. There's, there's not very much legally to them. These are political weapon. They want to imprison Trump. That would be a hell of a mistake because then he would run for the presidency as a political prisoner. All honest and courageous forces are obligated in the name of humanity to move forward, to declare 
what side we're on. We have to be clear, not for our own sake, but to say to our people, we cannot, and I, I say too many young black people, I just, I don't know how many, but too many that I know that I had as students and stuff. I understand where you're trying to connect to what you think of as our revolutionary tradition. What you're identifying as our revolutionary tradition is not that, sadly. Revolutionary maybe in words, reckless in action. There is no revolution carried out by small groups of people who are armed and are underground. Martin Luther King had it right. James Lawson has it right. The peaceful path is the people's path. The people respond to leaders who say, let us organize and mobilize. Let us have general strikes, work stoppages, stay at home. The people want government. The people do not respond to anarchism, but they want government that serves them and their children. Take your eye off the people and think narcissistically that you're going to do it, that you've got the right way to do it. You can't win that way. And in every people's struggle, there's always a heritage that we must renounce. Everything done in the name of black liberation did not then or will not now advance black liberation. Just cause you say you're a freedom fighter, that don't make you one. And because a lot of the people who have spent 40, 50, and more years in the penitentiary are of my generation. I knew of them. I don't think I knew many of them. I knew of their theory, of their tactics. And I'll say, my heart goes out to them but you were wrong, you were wrong. I just wanna end with, with two of my own experiences. They were both in Cuba. One, meeting with and talking to Asada Shakur and meeting with and talking to Huey Newton. Asada Shakur had rethought the theory and tactics of the Black Liberation Army. Cuba created space for her to think and study. If she knew in Cuba, and when I met with her, 
if she had known what she knew then, when she was a younger woman, she would have chose a different path. I think she literally admitted that to me. Huey Newton, and I'm practically quoting him, we were having dinner. I'd never met Huey Newton. He said, and he knew I was in the Communist Party. He said the American, he called it the American Communist Party was right. He said, but we didn't have enough time. Talking about we, the Black Panther Party, did not have enough time to develop the strategy and tactics and theory of a people's movement. And I think he died as a very sad man, by the way because he knew the potential of what they had begun and he knew how it was subverted. Each of these figures, uh, and I was, I was looking at an event uh, held about a week ago, uh, talking about political prisoners and prisoners of war. It always kind of impresses me that they do not examine the lives of Asada Shakur and Huey P. That is the That is necessary for the political education of the young generation. I know a lot of them might not want to pay me any attention. Who am I? You know, all of that type of thing. But you know, it is worth something to have been there at that time and to have, in fact, shared some of the same views that some of these people share. I think it, there is some value. Now, if you think that uh, you're going to recreate the Black Liberation Army or that you're not going to do that. The people put more trust in leaders that show a way forward based upon mass struggle, not underground elite armed detachments. These, this is a distraction. Uh, I'll stop there. Thank you, Emily. I hope I didn't talk to you. Yeah, people are clapping. Yeah, that was, I was really moved by your intro doc because I think you also framed the importance of not just this moment in world history, but also in the US. And in particular, when you were talking about actually, when you were talking about Trump in particular, I think like not just his indictments, but what he represents and what his movement represents. I think that was for me really important because the way you framed in particular, you said the wheel within a wheel, that there's a progressive instinct. There's a progressive instinct in that's driving the Trump movement that Trump may not even recognize. And maybe the people themselves aren't necess don't necessarily recognize, but it's a progressive instinct. And the reason- Emily, may I just say one small thing? Yeah. That metaphor of a wheel within the wheel 
It comes out of the black prophetic tradition. And it's uh, taken from a, a biblical story where Ezekiel, this prophetic figure, saw a wheel. He could see the wheel. I, I, I think the wheel is a metaphor for uh, the universe. But there is a wheel within the wheel that it is prophecy and, you know, from the religious point of view, that allows one to see the wheel in the wheel, the essence within everything. And so there's a great black spiritual called Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel and says, the big will run by faith and the little will run by the grace of God, the wheel, the wheel. So this concept of a wheel within a wheel, an essence within everything that is, that is appearance. So I just want to make that clear. No, thanks for clarifying. That's really deep. Jeremiah got excited because I think his Bible, his youth as a Bible student came out. He knew he was like, he, yeah, when you said Ezekiel, he's like, oh, I knew I knew what you were saying by wheel within a wheel. <laughs> he's smiling because he's excited. <laughs> you can do you want to say more? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that makes it even deeper because see, although it may not be a revolutionary moment yet, it is definitely, I completely agree with you about it being a pre-revolutionary period. You can see what may happen and the possibilities. And I feel like I'm just gonna repeat something that we've said in the past, which is that's why the triad of opposition is so important because what it does is it, like you said, you said it causes the it causes not just the possibility, but it increases the certainty that conversations, new conversations and new language will happen around. And when we and that sounds maybe abstract to people, but to me, it's really concrete of just like I was thinking a lot about, especially with Trump, where it's just in some ways you want to laugh at how astounding the Trump movement is, because here you have Trump being not only a narrative being pushed, but he's actually being charged, like criminally charged with, like there are charges against him. And I saw this comment from, I saw this comment from the director of the Center for Public Opinion and Policy Research at, at a university where he said, he actually looked at um, polling, co like corresponding with indictments, like the various indictments against Trump, Trump, which I think have been three so far, where he says, literally he says, there are concerted efforts by some groups to try and get the core Trump supporters to begin breaking away. But as we see with the trends and polling and after all these indictments, it's darn near impossible to chisel them away from supporting Donald Trump. And, and then they said, he says that actually after his first indictment, which I forget which one that was, I think it must've been around January 6th maybe, they said that after his first indictment, poll numbers went up among likely Republican voters. And then after the second set of indictments, they stayed even, so he didn't lose any voters overall. And then they, and then he says, I predict that after this recent indictment, and especially as his trials go on, that actually you will see a coalescing of support for non-Trump Republican voters. Mm -hmm. And you can see, and I don't know, I say this because like, to me, it's also very astounding and it says something really deep about like 
whether you want to say this section of the American people, but I think increasingly among many American people who will be talking about what's happening, that it's like that you see a movement of people who are taking like full responsibility for democracy in substance. Democracy, which is not voting, but democracy, which is the way you think, the way you will strategize in the future and how you will take ownership of your own country. And like this whole thing of achieving our country that Baldwin says. And and that's why I like the way you said, Doc, that Trump, like this will, I think makes people uncomfortable, but I agree with it, which is Trump is an antidote to the ruling elite. And when we say that, I actually think it's a very ideological thing where what we're talking about is Trump is an important player in the most important struggle of our times, which is an ideological struggle. Because what Trump is doing with these indict what he's doing with these indictments but also what's happening with these indictments and as he constantly is basically being pursued on this witch hunt and the way the american people are watching this all unfold and of course add in cornell west the way people are treating him add in rfk jr the way the media is treating him like add in all these people all these dissidents what you're seeing is also like is the birth is like the expansion of an ideological struggle like that's an advancement of the ideological struggle and that's where i think the left comes in where like you said this doc where you said with trump what we're seeing is like trump as an antidote to the ruling elite he's an antidote to the rupture like he's a rupture of the war consensus put together after the collapse of the soviet union that is not just a political consensus it's like it's also an ideological consensus there was a there was a birth or con there was a consolidation of ideological assumptions made and perpetuated that Trump himself, maybe he doesn't realize, but he's breaking apart. Like what's happening, I feel like with the triad of opposition led by Trump and everything going on, like Trump had that um, editorial he wrote for Newsweek that Jahan had shared where Trump says, what's happening to me, it's not a betrayal of me, it's a betrayal of the American people. He's saying Amer like what the ruling elite is doing with these indictments, it's not an attack on me, it's an attack on the American people. Like he's pointing out there's a crisis legitimacy and there's an opportunity for the people to take full responsibility, take power, take charge of our democracy. And so in some ways what he's doing is he's actually rupturing these assumptions, like certain assumptions, a way of understanding your own power, a way of understanding your own country, your responsibility, He's rupturing, like, I feel like what he's doing, what's happening is he's rupturing those assumptions that have been pushed by the war consensus. And isn't it interesting that actually that is an ideological struggle that historically should be, that is exactly the fight that should be, that the left should be involved in. But the so-called left today is not. They have abandoned their responsibility to do that. Um, and that's how I would kind of, I kind of saw it, but... That's also why I got excited. I was very moved and excited, not in a like, ah, excited way, but just excited in a, like, these are, like, these are, I say revolutionary times just as a euphemism, but these are pre-revolutionary times where I think the, the people are forever changed. And that is the importance of someone like Cornell West continuing to run and not abandoning that post. Because there's such an important ideal that that's such an important role in an ideological struggle, which is the key struggle against a war consensus. Um, 
Yeah, and I also think the last thing I wanted to say was just like that it's also interesting that Trump in that in his editorial, he makes the point to say this is a coup. Like what has happened to me, it is basically a coup. And to even attach that label is important. It's important for them, you know, because it's important even to see the assassinations of the 60s, all those national leaders. Like that is a move, not just that's not just an, a move against those leaders. Like they, it's not just them losing their lives, but it was a deliberate attack on the American people. And it's Trump saying that he's saying it's not about me. It's an attack on the American people. Um, yeah. And OK, actually, this is the real last thing I want to say. And I just I wanted to underline and agree with what you said, Doc, about like back to this thing of the wheel within the, the wheel, the wheel within the wheel and. Like, you know, yeah, what a just that beautiful story of Ezekiel saying, like, seeing in the sky a wheel within a wheel that and like to see, be able to kind of see the progressive instincts coming out in this moment, driving people like different forces that I completely agree that once the people find the right leader, they will fight and sacrifice for a new people. And I find it very similar. Like, again, maybe this makes some people uncomfortable, but I find it so similar to Martin Luther King Jr., like not the same, but there's a similar a similar movement in terms of like I, I'm reading. I'm still uh, I say this every week, but I'm still in the middle of reading Coretta Scott King's autobiography. And she made a point to say in Montgomery, Martin Luther King Jr. would say to her, I'm kind of uncomfortable with how fast everything is moving. But Coretta says King knew like she and King both recognized that he it was almost a divine thing that he at such a young age he had quickly become the trusted leader that the people were waiting for that the african-american people and eventually over the years the american people were waiting for and we see in the civil rights movement that once the people find the leader that they trust and they've been waiting for they will fight and they will fully sacrifice they will transform they will change they will fight and they will sacrifice not just for the leader, but for the movement the leader is leading, um, a transformation of the country. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when you were talking, Doc, I got chills. And um, and I think and I think it's important. I just think this moment is very important. And oh no, this is the real last thing I'll underline. I'll underline that what's that what's happening in America is like it is. It's the center of. It is the center of such an important world crisis, world moment, and the birth is the center of the possibility of the birth of a new world. Um, and so anyone who doesn't want to think about, especially if you are the so-called left, if you don't want to not just think about any of this, or but actually take responsibility for this ideological struggle, then you are, like Doc said, you are a coward. And then you should ask yourself, what are you afraid of? Well, I just wanted to add, um, I had seen that in the newest set of indictments, one of the, the charges that they brought against Trump was like a civil rights act of like the 1860s during the reconstruction period, which is basically called the Ku Klux Klan Act, where they're basically alleging that Trump like is basically the Ku Klux Klan, like the KKK, and that the January 6th event was um, an attempt to basically disenfranchise black voters or voters of color or something. And I think mm -hmm. that 
it's more a reflection of the fact of how desperate they are and how it's almost like so clumsy and ham-fisted of like, look, Trump is like the KKK. Like they've been saying this the whole time, but they need to like use, they need to go all out basically and say like Trump equals KKK. Like that is, that is just like, these are literally like 150 year old acts that they're bringing back in order to, um, yeah, in order to basically try to get Trump. Um, but I also wanted to bring up, there is, I like just came across an article in the Guardian that's called, um, it's called Trump shatters laws of political physics with the third indictment. And I just want to read uh, two paragraphs from it, but it says a whiff of criminality or scandal used to be career ending for politicians. President Richard Nixon resigned over Watergate. Vice President Spiro Agnew quit after being charged with bribery, tax evasion, and conspiracy. Gary Hart's presidential campaign collapsed due to allegations of an extramarital affair. And Anthony Weiner resigned from Congress after a series of sexting scandals. But Trump has shattered the laws of the political physics. He has made the state and federal charges now a combined 78 charges across three jurisdictions. He has made these charges against him a central plank of his campaign platform, casting himself as a martyr. At his rallies, he portrays the cases as not just an attack on him, but on his supporters, in which he told a crowd last week in Erie, Pennsylvania, quote, they're not indicting me, they're indicting you. So he's saying like, yeah, I think like Emily said this, but they're not attacking me, Trump, they're attacking the people. And um, I think just like the way that it's phrased is like breaking the laws of political physics mm. is I think very interesting because in some ways it shows that yeah, like very nascent new political formations, political mm. dynamics, um, political yeah, like patterns are developing mm -hmm. in the American across the American people right now. And this is what is very exciting is that it is exactly these times that call out for new formulations and for new conceptions of what is happening, but also what are the possibilities and how the people can act in the midst of these changing alignments and of these changing political dynamics um, in American society. And it just, the yeah, I think it just made me think a lot more about the civil rights movement and how I think there is such a, a broad misconception of something like nonviolence as almost a thing in itself, you know, a thing where it's just like, oh, like, are, am I nonviolent or am I violent? Like, that's kind of how it's framed. I feel like when you look back at it historically, but like how we understand the civil rights movement and the function of nonviolence as a revolutionary tactic and as a revolutionary method of struggle is as something almost like more sociological in a sense and philosophical in the sense that what it did was to directly go to the heart of one, the color line, but also to create essentially new social relations amongst the American people, right? And to essentially defy the ruling elite who had tried to overdetermine the social relations amongst the American people. And part of what we are, I feel like, in the midst of trying to develop and discuss and understand is, yeah, like it's less about nonviolence as like, yeah, like a thing in itself, but more how can we glean lessons from these past revolutions in America's history in order to develop new understandings of the kinds of ways that people can struggle in this time? And I don't know, I just feel like, like the way that we understand something like the Trump movement, the Trump phenomenon, and this triad, and this triad of opposition is like, there's one aspect of it, which is like almost 
the political issues involved, like nuclear war, all that stuff. But the undercurrent of it, the other side of it, which people are not seeing, which we're trying to understand, is essentially there is a sociology. There's like a sociology mm -hmm. to understanding these movements. What will it mean for people who either support Trump, RFK, Cornel West? What will it mean for them to basically meet each other in a new way and to come together in a new way and to develop and to know each other in a new way? Like this is like people, I feel like, this is why it's like it might be weird or uncomfortable for us to make this comparison between Trump and Martin Luther King, but it's less saying that even Trump understands this, maybe explicitly himself, but more we see the potential in this phenomenon of like through these presidential, these basically these presidential campaigns, that there are opportunities for, yeah, like, like movements that forge like a new kind of sociology amongst the American people. And this has everything to do with the crisis of legitimacy, because how is it that the people are going to overcome the ruling class except through redefining their own relationships amongst each other and taking this question of how shall we relate to each other and how shall we relate to humanity, taking that as a question on their own terms to decide and to discuss and to discover amongst, e amongst each other. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to, to bring that up because I feel like, yeah, I think I've been thinking a lot about yeah, like nonviolence lately and how it's been framed as something which is very almost narrow, but instead to see almost like the sociological dimensions of it and the political dimensions of it in terms of um, what this means for the capacity of, of the American people to, um, to govern, to decide things on their own terms and to have the confidence to want to decide things on their own terms and to not um, basically be, yeah, like overdetermined by the ruling elite. Um, but yeah, I just like that like also the the framing the phrasing of this article is like breaking laws of political physics mm -hmm. is very interesting. Yeah. Well, it seems uh, <laughs> to what Jeremiah said that the elites understanding of the people is about as bad as their understanding of physics. <laughs> They're almost applying a string theory like understanding of the American people and American politics. But I think there, I say that jokingly, but I think there are parallels in the fact of how uh, ideologically weak they are, they're getting in terms of their methodology and uh, of understanding political and, so, and sociological um, realities. And to what uh, Jeremiah and Emily were saying, uh, one thing that I've been uh, reading this week is uh, there's a book which uh, Reverend Lawson highly recommended uh, called, I think it's called Waging a Good War, a Military History of the Civil Rights Movement uh, by this. And the interesting thing about this book is it came out recently, like one or two years ago, but it's basically a study of the civil rights movement by this guy, Thomas Ricks, who's an award-winning um, war reporter and military journalist. And he basically says that we have to study the civil rights movement in the way that previous generation had to go back and restudy the civil war through this kind of a military lens. And there's some very interesting stuff in there. I was just coming to mind as uh, Jeremiah was speaking because he says how, I mean, first of all, how um, much their discipline was military-like. Like he basically describes the workshops that Lawson gave. He says, this is what the military would call high level training and indoctrination, not in a negative way, but he says that the and the, what I like about this uh, writer is that he takes the nonviolent thing very seriously. He says it's not a tactic. Uh, 
it's a strategy, meaning it's a total doctrine. And every effective army has to have a combat doctrine, which is very much tied to their morale and the goals that they wish to wish to achieve. And he he looks at King's very first speech at the start of the Montgomery bus boycott and says that King right there in that I think it was a 16 minute or so speech completely laid out the doctrine of this of this war, the goal of this war, how much nonviolence would be central to the both the discipline and the goals uh, that were supposed to be achieved. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's very significant to what Doc was saying in terms of what has really been revolutionary and what has really pushed history forward. Um, and, you know, and from and, and he cites Gandhi as well. And from King and Gandhi, both this idea that the nonviolent uh, ethic uh, or methodologies also and worldview is there to eliminate fear in ordinary people and to embolden ordinary people to really believe that they can change society. And, uh, you know, even to be uh, uh, nonviolent in a violent world means that you're committing yourself to the constant struggle to change society. And that is really the only way of getting at the truth. So it's a, it's a deeper inheritance that the American people still are fully uh, understanding. And this is a very promising historical turn to return uh, to that history. And uh, basically also because I've been studying Lawson's writings and his speeches lately, I mean, he himself also says that uh, the civil, what the work they did in Nashville was so significant because for the first time it brought down the colored and white signs uh, in the South and led directly to the uh, Civil Rights Act of 64, I think. And that was the first time that the government legally recognized the American people as one people that said legally there is not going to be any ability to uh, separate people's usage of, you know, water fountains or hospitals or anything else on the basis of anything, whether race, religion, creed, even uh, gender, as we've previously talked about. And so uh, it was highly significant in the development of U.S. history and in the development of the American people. And it's created the conditions that we operate in now in which the people are closer to each other uh, than before. And I, I totally agree that we have to have this understanding in a broader way. Like, obviously, the uh, polling is very important and the support for Trump is very important, but also ideologically what is happening. And a few things which I've seen, a couple of things are uh, one uh, to what also Doc was saying about uh, black men in particular, uh, openness to Trump. Tucker Carlson did an interesting interview with Ice Cube, the rapper. And if you recall, in the last election, uh, Ice Cube took a lot of heat from the media because he didn't endorse Trump, but he said that he was willing to meet with both sides to discuss his economic plan for black America. And he had some meetings with the Trump uh, campaign. And I believe he said that Trump was uh, like uh, the Trump campaign engaged more seriously with his plan than the Biden campaign did. And so in this interview, what I thought was interesting was uh, the first part, which I haven't I didn't get to see the whole thing, but basically Ice Cube took Tucker around South Central L.A. and showed Tucker's like viewers the situation of how people are living and the problems that exist and so on. And in the second part, which I watched where they actually sat down and talked with each other, um, it was interesting because Ice Cube, Tucker asked Ice Cube, like, what do you think about the elites talking about racism all the time? Do you really think they care about racism? And basically Ice Cube was like, no, I don't really think they're acting out of good faith. And I don't think that race plays a role in the way that they say in everybody's you know actual life but then ice cube did talk about and it was interesting that tucker kind of gave him a platform to talk about 
some actual problems like uh, racist politics, things that are happening. Like, for example, he's talking about the role of credit, something Magna, I think, is also researching, like how uh, black people and in, based on zip codes are not able to get the same access to credit that others are able to get that live in other zip codes. So he's like, oh, I have a neighbor in South Central. He wants to get a loan uh, to start a store, for example. But someone in, he can't because of his zip code, but someone in another zip code can get a loan and start a store in South Central. And I just thought it was interesting because, t- I mean, you know, Tucker's at least his audience, which I think is predominantly white, you know, Trump supporters are at least listening to, oh, OK, this is the situation in South Central L.A. This is a situation with racism and credit. And uh, I mean, you know, not that it's the most it's the deepest intellectual conversation, but it, it signaled to me, uh, you know, a kind of an opening like uh, we we're talking about of a new kind of realignment happening and people understanding each other and understanding the reality of a thing of like racism and the color line beyond what the elites are telling people about it, you know, and the ways in which and, and Tucker made another interesting comment where he's like, I've met a lot of rappers and I'm not really that into hip hop. But one thing I'll say is that rappers are much more open-minded and more intelligent than the average college professor I've met, which I thought was interesting. I was the kind of way of him saying that these, you know, black men who are maybe not college educated, sometimes not high school educated, are much more open-minded and intelligent and free thinking than the college professors who become students of the uh, elite. So that, and I also, uh, as I was reading Lawson's book, I was getting, I was thinking also, not Lawson's book, sorry, but the book he recommended, the Rick's book on the uh, civil rights movement. I was thinking also of our discussion about the Amazon labor union and Chris Smalls. And I'm optimistic that perhaps he's one figure and this, this more authentic wing of the labor situation that's happening uh, can also play some positive role because looking at his Twitter and his public comments, he's also basically uh, saying that we need to stop this thing of ideological purity tests and we need to reach out to people regardless if they vote for Trump or whatever on the basis of class. And uh, I saw he's, he tweeted before and again about the need to build a new labor party. So, the, you know, there's a lot of uh, possibilities at play if we break from the elite way of viewing things. And I think we're definitely on the uh, right track with that. <clears throat> yeah. Well, just with credit, um, you know, it's interesting because the academic world always talks about redlining and the all the discrimination, but it's just, it's almost like it's, what they're not talking about is just how ordinary people cannot get credit anymore. Um, it's become so, well, also it's not even a factor because you have these investor purchasers buying up huge, huge parts of the city. Um, and also in rural America and even suburban America. So, I mean, even the way these issues are framed are completely wrong, but it's all true. What people are facing is absolutely right. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, it just resonates with everything you said, Doc. It's such a framework for understanding what's happening. It's just this wholesale attack on the people um, and their understanding and vision for how to counter it. Right. Oh, yeah. And one more quick thing on the Espionage Act. Uh, The Espionage Act of 1917, which Dr. Trump is being indicted previously. uh, I think someone also wrote this in the comments, but one of the first prominent victim was during World War One itself, the great socialist Eugene V. Debs for giving an anti-war speech in Ohio was tried and then imprisoned for under that Espionage Act and actually ran for president from prison and got, I think, about six or seven million votes. But also the Rosenbergs, I believe, were tried and then uh, executed under that act. 
And Daniel Ellsberg, who died recently, who was a famous whistleblower against the war in Vietnam with the Pentagon Papers. This is a very dangerous thing that uh, Trump is being, I mean, this is an extremely repressive piece of legislation uh, that he's being uh, tried under. I think this thing of Trump is super important because there's a narrative of Trump that hasn't changed since 2016, like by the ruling elites, which it's that he's fascist and the people that support him are stupid. I mean, also are fascists. And it's the same narrative as been from 2013 to now. And that's important because essentially the ruling elite is both bunkering down and unable to think and see this phenomenon of Trump and what he represents because he is qualitatively different from uh, then and now. And what people are saying, which is that his base is even changing new mm. formations, new political formations. And it's not just a potentiality, it's actually happening. Um, with like we mentioned before with black people, but also like Asians and Latinos increasingly supporting Trump. Um, and that's interesting because it also like that's this concept of a movement is also important because people are moving and responding to not only to both um, what's happening in America, but also happening in the world. Um, and it actually reminds me of something that we had read a couple weeks back, which is by James Baldwin um, for titled A Postscript to a Letter from Harlem, in which he talks about the situation in Harlem and the like neglect of people in Harlem. And he asks the question of, would you want your children to live uh, in the conditions that black children grow up in, uh, in the projects of Harlem? But at the same time, he's also writing this in 1961, following the assassination mm. of Patrice Lumumba. Um, mm. And that's coinciding with um, essentially uh, a black protest at the UN assembly at the time. And what Baldwin is saying is that essentially like the black discontent that's happening, they, they pinned this group as communists and, um, and as a way of dismissing what their concerns were but what Baldwin is saying is actually no, like this black discontent that you see is actually part of a world uh, movement that's happening where in 1961, there's these African liberation movements and also people who are coming out of um, colonialism and trying to establish independence for them, independence for the nations. And I see that as very much parallel to our times where even since 2016, the world has changed since those times. The rise of China, the rise of the mm. also coming of, you know, all these African nations that had um, abstained from the sanctions against Russia. Uh, and so there is a question even for Trump and his supporters, which is the world is going through changes. Why is it not, like, why can't it happen here? Like what what is capable of, or the world's capacity for change can also happen in the US where people are increasingly trying to define, um, well, trying to gain independence and also define what the future of the country will look like. And I think that's also really exciting for us, which is that as we're seeing what's happening in the world, we're also seeing what's happening here as part of that world movement and part of what we're calling as the Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of the world, a new world order coming to being. Adding to what everybody is saying, uh, 
This, you know, the the the, the indictment is. Uh, I agree. The way uh, people are saying it, the ruling class is doubling down. Uh, they're not. They don't have any new plans. They don't have a new way to deal with this. Uh, I'm I'm sure they're thinking about putting a hit on on my man Donald, but uh, I haven't gotten that far yet, thankfully. Uh, but it's not. I don't view it as uh, outside the the realm of possibility. Uh, and uh, the 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 fuel the the limited effect it does have is just scaring us some some people. I ha I had to look up indictment. Uh, uh, I, I learned about it from listening to Gangster Rap because <laughs> I didn't know what it was. But it's it's just an accusation. They have no charges. They've been doing this for years. No charges. No case. No conviction. Uh, and uh, uh, to to the to to uh, more of the credit of the Trump movement. There's uh, all all these issues that people have that feel that life is unbearable. Uh, drugs, uh, uh, schools being uh, uh, useless, violence, uh, people that are concerned with the war in Ukraine, the people that are concerned with uh, what's going on in, in Africa, the central uh, force behind this is a ruling elite that has both assaulted the American people and let's uh, uh, the, the darker peoples of the world. And, uh, you know, this, this is not what I expected when I was in school, that it would be uh, uh, a guy that looks like, talks like Donald Trump or his supporters. But if, if there are these people that are coming uh, and, and have clearly identified the ruling elite as the, and what he says, the deep state is really the ruling elite uh, as the central enemy uh, for our times, uh, both domestically and globally, I would like to be in arms with those people. I would like to work together uh, on that issue. And uh, I, I, I think that uh, Donald, uh, Donald Trump has been, uh, a, he's not the full answer, of course, but he, I think he's been the leading figure in connecting all of these issues to the ruling elite. Uh, and I want to be, uh, yeah, in 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 communion with, in 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 struggle with all these uh, people. That I have all the more respect for uh, people like uh, Tucker Carlson and uh, even Donald Trump, meet, willing to meet with. Uh, uh, he he met with Ice Cube. I know. I think Donald Trump met with a guy named Killer Mike. I, I don't I don't listen to his music, <laughs> but they're trying to go really in a the most sincere way connect with. Uh, the people to uh, be able to take on these issues. I remember I, I watched some of this with uh, uh, Donald, uh, with uh, uh, Ice Cube and Tucker Carlson, where they were talking about the the COVID vaccines. Uh, and and uh, once again, it was a very serious discussion. I had never viewed Ice Cube this way before, to be honest. I, I associated him with uh, music and uh, uh, movies. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's 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 an interesting choice because the uh, the leadership of the people is so compromised with the with the misleadership class. And really, I view uh, I I didn't I didn't know how to interpret it before back when it was I think 2016 and uh, Trump meeting with uh, Killer Mike. But given that the misleadership class is so strong and have abandoned the people, going to somebody that uh, uh, like like a like a rapper, I really think is a sincere effort to truly get close to the people uh, as opposed to these so, quote unquote leaders that have been uh, compromised. Uh, so I, I think the, the possibilities for realignment are uh, as strong as ever.
I think that when I try to have conversations with people about Donald Trump, they try, they want to focus on certain absolutes, like whatever the New York Times or MSNBC or um, so many articles about the indictments and the charges, whatever is on the article, whatever is on the piece of paper, they want to focus on that. And I think I have a tough time trying to um, get across the fact that our analysis cannot be ahistorical. You can't just analyze this without analyzing all the historical um, facts and the precedents. I mean, you have to think about um, Hillary Clinton and the way that she was acquitted. You have to think about just, um, you know, in the recent past when Biden was seen having like these documents in his home, like he took them out of the White House and nothing happened. The Hunter Biden thing. Um, so, and also all of these things that have happened historically have to be included in our analysis when we're trying to compare what's happening to Trump to what has happened before. Why is this such a big deal? Why is one indictment after another coming on at him? And these things have to make you question as to the legitimacy and the, the actual purpose or the hidden agenda behind uh, these indictments. And it really goes to show how much they are trying to portray this as a good thing that um, I was reading an article in the Financial Times about how these indictments against Trump are a good thing on a global level because the U.S. allies are finding it um, are finding this an encouraging step by the U.S. and um, and taking it as you know um, a step to to sort of cement the U.S.'s position as a global leader. All of this time they were thinking that oh the U.S. is sort of maybe losing its touch, but now that it's actually upholding law and order and justice by indicting uh, this former president. We have faith in the US now, all the Western allies. That's their analysis. That's the analysis of the Financial Times, you know. Um, so it really goes to show that they're putting all of their resources into trying to um, not have Donald Trump become uh, the president in 2024. and their efforts have been quite brazen. As you said, the, the brazenness with which all of these assassinations happened back in the 60s and 70s, that is the brazenness with which this political assassination is taking place in today's time. I just, I don't have very much to say. I agree with what everybody said. And it's really, it's hard to watch these things. But you know this thing that Shantanu was mentioning, this FT article. I don't, I don't think I've seen this one. But if this is what it's claiming, I was actually feeling that this would have the opposite effect when the world is watching what's going on in the United States, because um, I mean, even to you know somebody who's never cared about politics in their entire life, and you see something like this being done to an elected, a person who was elected by a vast majority of the American people to hold office once 
to then try to paint him as a criminal and of course the logic they want to uh, apply is that oh would you would you you know make the moral choice to vote for somebody who has been criminally charged when who has been charged for a crime and you know the people are still saying yes we would we, we still would because because we, that's what because that's what the polls uh, show right now that after the indictment you know his support base gets even stronger and so it's a strategy that has failed and I mean, I even really liked what Trump said right after the indictment when he was flying back and he did, did that short press release. And he said, just going through the going through Washington, D.C., it broke my heart because it's so filthy and the buildings are defaced. And he was basically trying to connect his indictment to the state of, you know, American cities, but also the American seat of government. And uh, yeah, I mean. I don't know how this is supposed to be uh, in the public opinion, in the world opinion, a victory for the American ruling elite. They're, they're embarrassing themselves. But And I, I think that they're really coming at him from all sides, you know, because um, they have indictments saying, uh, going against whatever the Ku, Ku Klux Klan uh, law and then the Espionage Act and then recently, I didn't know this, but I found out recently that he's also being charged for an abuse case from the 1990s. Like in 1990, there was an abuse case with a woman and he's been indicted for that as well. 34 counts of felony. And I mean, you're digging up things that happened 33 years ago and you're... So it's basically every... They want to target every single... Um, community and say, okay, he's done something wrong to each of these communities. Yeah, I wanted to say like, you know, all of this really uh, like sort of makes sense when you like, you know, the way you were saying dog that the only way to understand this is to go back and look at this history of, you know, the coup d'etat that happened in America. And like, you know, like amidst all of these, uh, like, you know, articles about mm -hmm. the indictment and so on, like, you know, this one came out also on FT, where, you know, like, I think it was just titled something like how, like, you know, Trump's indictment is, you know, good news for America's allies. And, you know, how the whole question of, like, Trump, you know, Trump represents right. a threat to this, you know, cabal, um, like, this international cabal, which is the, like, I think the most important thing. We can't talk about Trump simply as you know like simply as contained mm -hmm. in america because this is a difficult time for liberal democracies across the world and you know as as we are seeing in like ukraine and as we are seen in like in the middle east for like the last 30 years and so on like this is the time when all of these questions are coming into head and um, people all over the world no longer buy this um, notion of liberal democracy which you know america has been trying to to, to you know sell for the last you know um, since the last 70 years and i think like this is sort of like it it was an honest article in the sense that you know it it just you know it it, it just tells you straight that you know this is the main reason why these indictments should be followed with a quickness basically but it it just shows that you know the like the strings are not being pulled like, like the strings are being pulled under the name of democracy but what it's really saying is war I mean, at this point you know democracy and war it's almost like you know goes hand in hand there is no distinction between the two it's not even that you know one should like you know one is morally the opposite of the other but they are at this point you know connected at the helm. 
Yeah. Yeah, if I could just say something about um, this realignment real quick. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm not really sure what makes somebody a part of the Republican Party, like what that ideology is or what kind of lines you have to adhere to. But, you know, with Trump being a part of the Republican Party, but not really, um, I guess, aligned with them, if you look at like the policies and like the unifying of the ruling class, um, you know, and just everything all around with like, say, um, what we talked about last week with the unions um, and just working people all around um, ready to move away from these larger institutions or this like uh, cemented leadership. Um, it kind of just gets me thinking a bit about um, just a great shift that's going to happen in this country because even on, um, on the side of like, say for example, people don't um, agree with everything or, or say that, okay, um, maybe they don't like China or maybe um, something like that. But still with this great, with this big movement, um, like the issue is still putting, the, the issue on the center is still that um, it's the ruling class kind of leading this. And that's like the big uh, exposed thing. Um, so I guess it's just really, um, I kind of forgot what I was going to say. But yeah, no, this just this big thing, I guess, shift is happening within, I guess, parties and within these big um, unions or institutions all around. I would say even just from talking with people at my job, um, no trust for the unions, actually just disdain, um, you know, um, all of that, like all of that kind of opening up this, um, this space for, I guess, new... I mean, I don't know if I would say like a new party or whatever, but certainly a new people um, because people are tired of, uh, of of being pit against each other and saying that, you know, um, whoever and such and such is your enemy. So, yeah, it's just um, just to bear witness to that and say, yeah, like certainly something is, is changing and all of that, all of the things could get worked out because... I guess one thing that people and maybe Trump tries to appeal to is a little bit the conservative, um, the conservative side with talking about, um, I guess, I don't remember if it was anti-abortion or not, but, you know, with like the traditional values, you know, uh, traditional Christian America, um, you know, I guess what he says, reclaiming the education system from the crazed uh, leftists and whatnot, but which really is just the, the ruling class. Um, the main reason people are willing, I guess, to uh, unify behind Trump being just that attack on the ruling class. So yeah, that's that's kind of the main thing I'm looking at. I just want to highlight uh, some of what you said, Doc, earlier about the uh, Civil War, the Cold Civil War. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And what kind of everybody is speaking towards is the ideological struggle as almost the center of, uh, you know, the struggle 
today and um, the difficulties of it, whether that be at the left um, and all of its demeaning and ahistorical cowardice. Yeah. And um, because how you broke it down, like why do the Communist Party still call itself communist? Um, why um, do you not see or want to see, like who's paying you enough to like not speak the truth? And why is it so hard to um, know the truth mm-hmm. or want to um, um, endeavor in the same way? And how is all of that noise making it even harder for the people to emerge, um, for the people to have a voice? To um, and I just I was um, there's a lot of ways that people are distracted by the ruling elites from the actual fact that to what you're saying with the point of Angela Davis and P. Newton that they actually do have power they have a vision and can also trust themselves in what they know while whether it be nonprofit industrial complex or um, the unions or this, the black Miss leadership class every like people who or even cultural figures like rappers or whatever like just people even the movies like there's always other ways instead of like the reality of this historical moment mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to both know and understand and reconcile with, which is actually just a crime. It's just a crime. Um, and, you know, the ideological struggle is at the center of the most historical movement and transition that this world could actually um, move into. And I just wanted to highlight that because like what Alice said earlier, there are other countries that are endeavoring to create a new world. But the whole world also needs American and the American people. Um, And that made me think about, well, the people today are different to what you're saying. Like there has been, um, what you said, the uh, war um, consensus, the war consensus after the fall of the Soviet Union that created um, in fact, this ideological propaganda and, you know, people accommodate to it in a lot of ways. People mm-hmm. can see mm-hmm. and people believe in the lie or people don't know how to respond to, like, the amount of lies that are being produced by the ruling elite. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, what you're talking to about your um, students. Um, mm-hmm. There's people who uphold lies and people who want to um, uh, act like they're leaders of the people when people are not even there to be, um, to listen or um, discuss or even debate. Um, And I think why, again, I like the ideological struggle is important and why the free school is important is because we're actually doing something significant, which is focusing on the values and struggles of the minds of the people um, for human beings to actually develop. And um, that makes me reflect about a lot of things. 
And, you know, because I just feel like, I, or I could imagine that regardless of the transition or the shift or the difference between our time and the past, yeah. um, there was still a way for the people to have or push wind behind like either the Communist Party with Henry Winston or um, there's like there's still a connection between the people and and a movement and I feel like the ruling elite have found a way to cut off um, these con these um, connections whether that be just through um, the propaganda or like different institutional either cultural mm -hmm. Or you know, through the universities and that kind of things, and I think that rebuilding of trust between the people and and like being able to create a movement or something that I'm trying to articulate, like that has the ideological struggle um, ha has to be kind of like trusted again. Mm -hmm. People have to find themselves being able to work out mm -hmm. the truth and the mm -hmm. political scenario mm -hmm. that they're in. Mm -hmm. as well as what they need. Um, because to what you're saying, Doc, you're talking about let the people do work. It's not for leftists to tell people this is the work to be done and this is how you, um, this is the concern to be mm -hmm. uh, worked out. Mm -hmm. But it's up for the people, like the American people, whether wherever they're from. And so then two things also occur with even that, like the, the kind of mental, emotional, and physical transformation of the people um, to become whole again, mm -hmm. which is, will be an emotional process in and mm -hmm. of itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, so I just think that the ideological struggle Releasing the truth amongst the people is the most important thing in this point of crisis when the government is and the ruling elite is ultimately facing all of its pressure um, towards the people and turning on the people. Right. Um, Sorry, I was. I was just going to, uh, you know, respond to what everybody has been saying, but also go back a little bit to some of the things that you brought up, Doc, in your initial presentation, um, including these, you know, the articles against Cornell West. Um, and uh, I think that this is now, I mean, the article by Bhaskar Shankar, and uh, I don't know if you said the name of the other guy. Uh, but also from the nation uh, magazine, um, you know, saying that Cornel West should not uh, run or should run within the Democratic Party. Uh, I think that's the second or maybe third, I think the third article that has come out in the nation about Cornel West. And I think I remember a month ago, there was an article um, which basically, I think literally said Cornel West has no business running for president. Um, and uh, I think it exposes um, a lot about the way the uh, you know so-called American left views black people um, 
and uh, you know it's almost this kind of uh, you know and the way they phrase it you know oh, you know you're good as an academic but you know don't you know uh, don't do this it's kind of a stay in your lane you know uh, don't do what you're not supposed to do um, way of phrasing things and uh, i think this you know i mean somebody like bhaskar i mean i don't even know if he can be called the left anymore this probably is a basically a mainstream liberal um uh there um i mean this way of thinking in such uh you know we're going to push the democratic party to the left which um i mean it's the same thing they've been saying for you know 30 years and um it's, it's as if all of these world events all of these changes have no effect on their thinking uh, and really if anything they stand in the way of the people i think um uh, about uh, uh, so i think that's very significant and you know also, i mean this whole, you know also focusing just on the election and not seeing the potential of what cornell west is doing beyond the electoral results um, which does tie i think to this indictment of a trump that everybody uh, has been discussing and uh, uh, i agree i think it's unprecedented i think that um, even this kind of you know uh, charade of you know we are a democratic country uh, you know because we have these elections is all uh, i mean this is the weaponization of the state against a former president and a current presidential candidate um, i mean this is totally unprecedented uh, and I think maybe the um, ruling elite doesn't realize uh, where it's gone by doing this. Um, you know, what the consequences of this could be. Uh, and uh, even in terms of what it's going to do to the Trump campaign, I think it's not clear because uh, obviously now they've made the focus of the next election. Um, you know, they've made Trump the focus of the next election and these legal cases the focus of the next election uh, but you know the legal battle is not the main one the main thing is going to be the political battle um, and uh, it uh, uh, I mean it's too soon to say I guess you know it, it it's something that may that and I guess based on the polling data and so on is going to uh, favor Trump maybe more than uh, hurt him uh, I mean, it's possible, and but you know, if the state can now be weaponized in this way, then what that will lead to, um, I think, uh, is hard to say. And it's just they've opened a can of worms, it seems to me. Um, and I think it's related to what Trump promises to do, which is, uh, you know, one of his campaign promises being that he's going to dismantle the deep state, um, and this continuous attack that he's doing on this. Uh, permanent bureaucracy in Washington, um, and that's um, uh, that's very significant. And I just I think Emily, I don't know which polling data you're referring to, but I remember reading about five days back in the New York Times uh, a kind of description of the base of Trump. Uh, I think it was an article entitled "Why Donald Trump is So Hard to Beat," uh, and it basically said something like, uh, you know, that 40% of uh, close to 40% of, I guess, registered Republicans are committed to Trump. Uh, and I think it was by Nate Cohn. And the way it described that 40% was by saying that, you know, it's uh, blue collar or basically it's working class. Uh, it's convinced that the nation is on the verge of catastrophe. It's and it's populist. Um, 
and uh, uh, you know one of the things that you brought up at the beginning was uh, the threat of uh, uh, the threat of world war and you know other you've been discussing also the other promise that trump has you know there's going to bring peace in ukraine um, uh, and uh, i have a feeling that really in the world at this time i agree with you the threat of world war the threat of nuclear war is higher than it ever was um, and i think that the american people may be the determining factor at this time um, you know on the question of peace and war really around the world i mean you know it doesn't matter if you're in ukraine or russia i think everybody's eyes are going to be on what's happening in the us it will really be you know the effect that the american people are going to have um, is at this time is uh, unprecedented Yeah, what Raju, just real quick, what Raju said about uh, the, the way the American state is being used uh, and what it will mean in the future. Um, you know, RFK Jr. was uh, criticized for his comments, basically saying that, uh, uh, you know, no state had ever been so totalitarian, no state had ever had uh, so much digital control over its citizens. And you know, before World War One and World War Two, uh, propaganda was restricted to wartime, and currently, uh, legally, we are not at war um, or a declared war with any state. And there's still like a very strong consensus in the media that has never existed before in this, in, you know, in this country or in any country before, and. Um, what what the, the what is happening to the the state is uh, concerning because in you know the way I see the election crisis of 2020 or 2024 uh, the continuing crisis uh, we've we've had contested crisis or contested elections and crises since 2000 you know in, in 2000 I remember that the election was really close and it went to the Supreme Court. But it wasn't a constitutional crisis then. And then in 2004, you know, Kerry, many Democrats accused the Bush of stealing that election as well. And if you recall, the Diebold voting machines came up in the media very frequently. The media cast out on that election, saying that those voting machines could be hacked. And you know, Glenn Greenwald has written about how uh, America has one of the most backwards election processes in the world and we have not reformed it. So that was in 2004. Um, so, you know, so we've had contested elections for almost 20 years. Why all of a sudden now is it a constitutional crisis? Um, I just wanted to read some some comments, but also one one quick thing from what people are saying, I think Part of the, I think, significance of the ideological struggle is that the way that we understand it is that the struggle of ideas to unleash this amongst the American people is to unleash a like a, a democratic process amongst the American people. Because for so long, basically, like part of this crisis of legitimacy of the ruling elite is that people no longer believe the ideology the philosophy of the ruling elite. And so that then places it on the people to decide what will be 
our ideology, like how will we proceed almost on like basic philosophical terms. And um, I don't know, yeah, I'm still just interested in this question of like, what would be a sociology and therefore strategy of a people's movement that essentially consolidates and unites the people against the ruling elite? I think that that is like one of the questions that like, we have on the table, but um, if it's okay, I'll just read some, some comments. But uh, Todd, Don Doherty, Ryan Wagner, Future Homestead, Christopher Romero, Yvonne, um, a few other people say good morning. Um, and uh, Pastor Keith says, oh, grand rising. Um, and then Ryan Wagner on YouTube says, with every indictment, Trump's base of support grows more sycophantic in their support for him because of the fraudulence of the indictments and the legal theory used to justify them. And speaking of political witch hunts, former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan was just arrested and given a three-year sentence for quote-unquote fraud. Hmm. His supporters are calling for a national peaceful protest. Um, Danny Jacobs says, yeah, Jahan mentioned this, but that Eugene B. Debs was also charged under the Espionage Act. Um, and then adds further that much of the American people do not vote at all. And those who don't vote remain the largest party in the United States. And then also adds that uh, the recent Fitch ratings downgrading of the U.S. Uh, registered a political point, quote unquote, the erosion of governance. Um, oh yeah, it registered like the erosion of governance in the United States as the primary reason given for the downgrading of America's like debt. Um, and then he further adds that the left are not connected to the quote ruling elite. That would imply they have some kind of power. They are actually just useful idiots as tales for the Democrats, but also for the Republicans a little bit now. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I think I get what Danny's saying, but also, I also think it's doing a disservice. I think it's doing a disservice by just calling the left idiots because I actually think they have agency. And I think it is an, ab an abdication of responsibility to just say that they're just a bunch that, like, I feel like in some ways it's abdication of responsibility to say that they don't have a role to play because it really is the difference between are you standing in the way of the people or are you staying in the way of the people and actually helping the ruling elite's agenda mm -hmm. or are you going to like be part like just like the american people be part of a revolutionary process and mm -hmm. and i just I, and i think the ideological struggle is important it, it's an important contribution to hard the ideological struggle of our times and that's where the left could play a role mm -hmm. the people who are part of the left yeah well could i add also that uh the specifically the people that we're talking about uh like uh Bhaskar and uh the nation i mean that's like a major institution the nation magazine in terms of its ideological impact and uh jacobin and then um even people from the communist party have roles in trade union bureaucracy or at least influence so it's not like they're just you know people on the margins who are just tailing there is there is definitely like emily said an agency and an, and a role that they're trying to play especially when it comes to these institutions like organized labor media and uh, academia and so on um okay i'll continue with some more comments uh, Future Homestead on YouTube says that the movements happening in Africa right now give us inspiration. 
and I really hope that there is no military intervention. Seeing how much coverage the situation is getting on Western news is concerning. Um, and then Jacob Carpenter says, good morning from Las Lunas. Um, he says, good morning to the free school. Thanks for the timely Spotify upload last week. I have to go work on my buddy's AC unit, but I'll see you guys Monday on Spotify. And then Ryan Wagner and BK liked what Doc was saying during his opening remarks. Um, and then Danny Jacobs again says, yes, Roe v. Wade has had legal issues since its very first existence. It is not really Trump's culpability. And even uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought that the initial Roe v. Wade ruling was weak. Um, Ryan Wagner adds, the Biden administration is sending weapons intended for its proxy in Ukraine to Taiwan in order to pr provoke another war in the South China Sea. But somehow, quote unquote, Cornell West, Trump, and RFK Jr. are, are somehow the problem with, quote unquote, our democracy. Um, and then adds that, that COINTELPRO never ended. Uh, Future Homestead says that uh, Noah Kravachevich's uh, Marxism class in Midwestern Marx just presented a pamphlet on Noah's theory of reproletarianization and why he thinks we are in a revolutionary movement. I found it compelling. Um, <laughs> and then Ryan Wagner adds, we're right on the edge and further military extension abroad has the potential to solidify an even swifter shift by the global south towards BRICS plus away from the US dollar um, and that this will force conditions in the US closer to the revolutionary edge. And all of this is self-inflicted by the ruling elite, as Doc said. Yeah, I think I saw that Venezuela had recently um, applied to join BRICS, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, and then someone named the Urban Educator says, good morning, free school. Uh, Future Homestead says, I hope the birth of a movement in the US will be able to inspire a movement here in Canada. Do you recommend any Canadian comrades to organize with? The left, the left parties here are not great. Mm -hmm. And then ask where they could find the, um, I think it was the King speech in Montgomery. Um, and then. Or was it the Lawson speech? Yeah, maybe King. Yeah, King or Lawson. Um, and then also Ryan Wagner adds, addressing the primary contradictions of the U.S. domestic and international politics, the entirely corrupted system of governance must be the primary concern and organizing tool of a revolutionary movement. Are you dividing the people or are you bringing people closer together? Um, yeah, Pastor Keith says grand rising comrades and fellow travelers. Uh, and then Why Not Learn has some maybe dis dissenting, dissenting views mm. with uh, I think some remarks maybe that Doc made, but says, I disagree. It is hard for me to view Dr. Matulu Shakur as being wrong. So he and others shouldn't have taken over Lincoln Hospital and he shouldn't have helped to free Asada Shakur from police custody. And then also on the Ice Cube hip hop uh, thread says, nothing fruitful is going to come from Ice Cube and Tucker Carlson. Rappers have been a vehicle for ruling class propaganda, let's be real. Going to an entertainer that isn't, that it says, um, oh yeah, so is going to an entertainer that who is not involved in grassroots movement somehow a sincere effort? Um, the, en the enemy has always went, gone to black entertainers, that's nothing new. Um, but, but yeah, I think that's most of the comments. Well, I guess I just wanted to clarify that we're not saying, I think I, I think we in free school would agree that rappers have been a vehicle for ruling class mm -hmm. propaganda. I mean, you can look at 
who funds hip hop and rap, at least the, I mean, for the, like the contemporary hip hop and rap and the nation of Islam has good books on that. But I do think that in terms of Tucker Carlson and Ice Cube, what we're saying is that it's not the solution, but it's a reflection of something new. Mm -hmm. And it's a reflection of like, it's also a reflection of the expanding language and the expanding types of conversations that are happening because you have something like the triad of opposition, Trump, Cornell West, RFK Jr. And then you can expand even more, Marion Williamson, Tulsi Gabbard, that you are able to have these kinds of conversations where the primary question is that of war and peace. Um, and is that of war associated with poverty and deindustrialization and inequality and then peace, like peace abroad, but a peace economy. What about peace in our streets? And so I think that is what we were, that was the point we were trying to make. Um, yeah, and I even just want to emphasize this point that just because like rappers or even the Republican Party or Democratic Party as we know it as institutions doesn't preclude like individuals and new events from arising. Mm -hmm. Like someone like Tucker is not the norm of I don't know, Fox News or the Republican Party. Someone like Trump isn't and neither mm -hmm. is RFK Jr. of the Democratic Party. And that also applies to rappers as well, because we've talked about Kanye West in the past mm. as well, where he does emerge out of, um, you know, money and hip hop and funding, like tremendous wealth. But he's now having gone through that process, speaking out against the control of rappers, mm. the money, um, the ideology as well of rap. Um, and I think, yeah, just to emphasize what I guess what Emily you were saying, which is what are what is new arising in this political moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also want to, I think, respond to the the other point, I think, which was basically about when Doc was bringing up, you know, when you had met um, Asada Shakur in Cuba mm. and how Asada Shakur had kind of developed in her thinking after coming to Cuba. Mm. And I think the larger point about this kind of notion that to be a revolutionary is basically to like, pick up arms and to wage like an armed struggle as part of like a small vanguard or something like against the government and how that is many that has become many people's notions of like what a revolutionary is and yeah I think I don't I don't know all of the details I think of Asada Shakur's life and I think her especially the political dynamics of it but I do think that I feel like the point still remains that if you consider yourself a revolutionary the question is not like how extreme can you be, but rather the question is how much can you be of service in uniting the people? And I feel like that is essentially like how we understand this question um, and why we look to someone like, um, like King as like the primary example of what a revolutionary looks like in the United States. And even people like Huey P. Newton recognizing that I think more in um, upon reflection, I guess, of also the Black Panther Party's history. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to add that. Can I add to what you're saying? Like, just to overemphasize how much ideology and the ideological struggle is like so important because it's just, um, it, it's like the moving thing to the whole edifice. Like, um, I feel like when I talk about free school to other people, it's like I'm talking about a whole nother world, but it's not. It's just like 
a different viewpoint, a different way of seeing history, a way of understanding it. And it's like, well, why is that gap to me? Maybe it's just from the people I've come to. I don't know. But like, so big. It doesn't have to be. But, um, and, and it goes for everybody. It's just the ideology, basic, first. And the rappers are in that. Kanye, like everybody's in that mix. Whoever has the right ideas, whoever wields the truth, that's that's the whatever the sword that heals. Um, but I just wanted to add to what Jeremiah was talking about about uh, nonviolence versus violence, the whole conversation there. But I like one thing I just remembered was like uh, uh, an interview of Diane Nash where she's talking about how she moved to violence after she saw the Watt riots in Los Angeles. And at that time, there was a increase in like, like there's an increased emphasis on poetry that was also talking about violence and how that moved her for a brief bit to think about violence as a more powerful way to address social change. And for one year, she tried, yeah, she says that I moved away from nonviolence and started questioning nonviolence. And then then she says something which was which I thought was interesting, which was which she said was that using illegal means you cannot build a mass movement, and the only way you would bring about social change, which is sustained, is also by like is so only by like doing something that is right, and and by do by asking like or or making this choice that saying that oh what is happening is wrong right now, and we need to fix that. You cannot use means that also rely on doing something wrong and and expect that change to happen. So I thought that was interesting and considering how and then she talks about how like she came back to nonviolence and she thinks that it's the biggest weapon we have uh, for bringing about social change. But the other thing that I was trying like I think uh, Jahan also spoke about it briefly was about power being linked to nonviolence and how and Lawson describes power as something that the capability to bring about change and he says that in in that way to like nonviolence is the most powerful method simply because it can bring about this change this long term sustained change so i i thought that was yeah um maybe if no one has any other comments on this I thought I feel like a lot of the comments and even the conversation, the first half of, well, first two thirds of preschool, um, relate to um, Raju's review of Martin Wolf's recent book. So maybe we could, if you guys are okay with it, we could go to that. Um, well, I don't know if we wanted to read the whole thing out loud or just have Raju. You can like discuss the review you wrote and also the book. Um, I don't know which one you and Doc think would be which ways better, which would be better, or what you would prefer. Me, whatever you say. Oh no. Uh, well, I, I kind of think it's worth reading. Actually, maybe. Um, we can read it and then you can talk about your review, Raju, and then we can have a, like a discussion. Would you want to read the review? Sure. 
Would you? Oh, well, do you want to read your review, Raju? Oh, <laughs> Let's give the option. Or you want Kathy no. to read it? Oh, dear. Really? Okay. Okay. Let's get it set up. <laughs> Should we share screen share it? I also have it up on my screen so I can read from here. Hopefully my sound is able to travel. Um, give me one quick second. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, I'm going to pull it up, but... Mm -hmm. Just ignore the fact that I highlighted <laughs> some things. I highlighted for a reason. <laughs> okay. Okay. Okay, is everyone ready? I can start reading. So this article is titled, Can the West Be Saved? A review by the crisis, um, sorry, a review of the crisis of democratic capitalism by Martin Wolf, um, an article by Archisman Raju. Martin Wolf's book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, is an important and ambitious work which deserves to be read by a wide audience. Its primary strength is in laying the background and setting the parameters for a discussion of a world crisis that we face today. Wolf is, a well known, is well known as the chief economics commentator at the Financial Times, the foremost business newspaper in the world. The fact that he thinks both liberal democracy and market capitalism are in crisis is thus very significant. As Wolf writes, the central argument of the book is to, quote, recognize the need for substantial change if core Western values of freedom, democracy, and the enlightenment are to survive. But in doing so, we must also remember that reform is not revolution, end quote. This admission indicates how deep Wolf judges the crisis to be, a challenge essentially to Western civilization, which is in the throes of a crisis, which may require revolutionary change. Wolf's project instead is to save the current system, which he favors, and he suggests an ambitious, social democratic program of reform is needed to do so. The book must be read as a work of political economy. Its focus, for obvious reasons, is on the Western world and particularly on its leader, the United States. It is divided into four parts. The first and weakest part is on the historical evolution of market capitalism and liberal democracy. The second and perhaps the strongest part judges the scope and factors behind the current crisis. The third sets out Wolf's proposed agenda for a quote, new New Deal of social democratic reform. And the final, in Wolf's words, quote, most important, end quote, part, addresses global challenges, including climate change and the rise of China. The book starts with the reference to James Baldwin with the first chapter titled, quote, the fire this time, end quote. However, if Baldwin's work have left any impression on Wolf, it is hard to discern in the subsequent text. The weakness in his historical treatment of the rise of markets and democracy in part one of the book is precisely that he has no conceptualization of color or colonialism. However, Wolf's key argument is nevertheless interesting 
for he argues that liberal democracy and global capitalism are deeply interlinked and will be saved or presumably die together. It is part two of the book entitled, quote, what went wrong, end quote, that is the most interesting to read. Quote, trust in democratic institutions, the global market economy and economic elites has faded over recent decades, end quote, as Wolf says. Why is this so? The culprit, Wolf argues, is economic failures, including, quote, rising inequality, weak growth of real incomes, deindustrialization, end quote, all of which were exacerbated by the financial crisis and austerity. He points to inequality as a particularly significant failure, saying that it alienates people, the people, and demonstrates con the contempt elites have for ordinary people. Interestingly, Wolf does not view cultural factors, which have been the intense focus, particularly on the left, as primary explanations for the current crisis. He says, quote, the crucial difficulty with primary, primarily cultural explanations is that they fail to provide an answer to the obvious question, why now, end quote. While Wolf hints at the complexity, sorry, there you go. While Wolf hints at the complexity of the economic changes that have taken place in the past few decades, it is clear that the faults in the economy lies with the elites and what he calls rentier capitalism, quote, in which a relatively small proportion of the population has successfully captured rents from the economy and uses the resources it has acquired to control the political and even legal systems, end quote. Though he is against populists like Trump, Wolf nevertheless is not hysterical about their rise as many on the American left have become. He refers to Thomas Piketty's analysis of the evolution of political loyalties in France, the UK and the United States, which has led, says Wolf, to quote, a Brahmin left, i.e. highly educated and a quote, merchant right. There has been a split in the quote, educated class of leftists and intellectuals and organized labor, end quote, which the first of whom has much has become much bigger as educational opportunities increase. And the second has weakened because of deindustrialization. Quote, abandoned as they see it by traditional left of center parties, the less educated and less well-off members of the old working class believe that elites and especially the intellectual elite are hostile, not just to their interests, but to their values and ethnic and national identities, end quote. In these conditions and the total alienation of the people from the elites and a crisis of legitimacy of the system, Wolf asks if the center can hold. In part three, Wolf argues for renewing capitalism, argues for renewing capitalism and comes up with detailed proposals, many of which are broad and interesting. His ideological outlook, as he says, is quote of reform and not revolution, end quote. He offers a mildly updated version of FDR's program, a higher and sustainable standard of living, good jobs, equality of opportunity, security, and the ending of special privileges for the few. Wolf welcomes openness in trade and foreign direct investment, but not in finance. 
Further, he indicates in several parts of the book that quote, an open border policy is unsustainable and immigration must be controlled in a way that is, quote, humane, yet also acceptable to the great majority of citizens, end quote. In terms of equality of opportunity, he thinks the emphasis should be on poverty and class and not on race and gender. Wolf supports the welfare state, but is, um, but is against proposals such as the universal basic income. Finally, he is blunt in how the current society benefits the few, saying there is a, quote, corporate governance regime that, re that rewards powerful insiders, a competition regime that tolerates powerful monopoly, and a regulatory regime that tolerates co corruption, and not least, a tax system that makes paying taxes by the wealthy almost voluntary, end quote. In the final part of the book, where he considers the international challenges facing liberal democracy, the focus is almost entirely on the rise of China and the threat it represents to the West. Wolf thinks that the relationship between liberal democracies and China will be more complex than the Cold War. He thinks, quote, China is a far more potent adversary than the Soviet Union, end quote. In conclusion, Wolf wants comprehensive reforms that can restore citizenship and rejuvenate the West building an international alliance of liberal mm. democracies. There are some profound weaknesses in Wolf's work. The first is almost entire, totally ignoring America's forever wars and the military industrial complex. Wolf fails to consider both the domestic effect of these wars and how they have been viewed internationally. He fails to see American empire systemic link to the collapse of liberal democracy at home. His call for, quote, an international alliance of liberal democracies will be read as nothing but a call for a united Western world, which can continue its neocolonial hold over the world. Several, uh, second, there are several aspects of the crisis in America which he does not consider, including gentrification, increasing gun violence, a monstrous prison system, and the collapsing public school system, among others. The final is a question of agency. Who will implement the reforms that Wolf, Wolf lays out? For Wolf, the agency lies in the enlightened elites who he hopes to convince well, to save the system. This sentimental appeal comes off as weak and ineffective. The weaknesses of his historical understanding reflect in the weakness of his future vision. He casually mm. and very briefly treats the two democratic revolutions in the US which expanded the notion of citizenship in the US, the Civil War and the end of slavery and the Civil Rights Movement, not even mentioning the name of Martin Luther King Jr. once in his long book. This explains why Wolf's theory, theorization of democracy is so woefully inadequate. Ironically, for all his support of democracy, Wolf maintains an elitist worldview where the people have no role in making history. The importance of Wolf's book is that it is an honest attempt to detail the crises of the West, in particular, the crisis of legitimacy in its leading power, the United States. However, it may be too late in the day for the kind of reform that Wolf desires, and certainly there's little political will. The question he raises will be for the American people to answer, reform or revolution, however, Martin Luther King Jr. might have framed it more mm -hmm. aptly when he said, 
Where do we go from now? Chaos or community? Um, but we'll hand it over to Raju to talk about, you know, the review and the book and, you know, I don't know, you know, just talk. Uh, well, I, I don't have a lot to say. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'd like to hear what uh, you all thought. Uh, it's also, you know, I'm still planning to edit this a little bit. Um, it's not in its final version, so um, that'll be valuable. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're all familiar with Martin Wolf. He often comes up in the free school. And uh, uh, I think, uh, um, I mean, this book, I mean, the, if you look at the review in the Financial Times itself about the book, um, you know, it compared the book to uh, Marx's Das Capital and, uh, you know, kind of said that Martin Wolf is, you know, maybe the answer for this time. Um, and uh, uh, it, uh, um, yeah, so it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I felt on reading it uh, that uh, it's definitely worth reviewing. And it's uh, uh, in saying that it sets the parameters of the discussion, I think, uh, um, I mean, I think many of us will recognize some of the things he is, he's saying because we discuss it in the free school so often. Um, even though we may not agree with, you know, Martin Bull's vision of where things uh, have to go. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's all I would say. And I'd be interested in hearing, uh, you know, just how people react. Yeah, well, uh, I'm personally very glad that Raj took the time to read this book and write this review because uh, speaking of the, you know, our discussion of the left, I think it's very helpful uh, to understand uh, the kinds of the way that I guess you, you could argue maybe certain sections of the elite. This is something I'm, I'm actually a question to have, but it seems to me maybe certain sections of the elite, the more intelligent parts represented by Martin Wolf perhaps have a vision for their own kind of realignment where they may like to manage this crisis through a kind of political realignment towards a, this kind of, uh, I guess you would say social democratic vision that is, uh, or we could say uh, maybe social corporatist vision, but which is not really going to uh, increase democracy for the people or address that basic question. And of course, tied to that is a question of uh, imperialism. Um, so, uh, well, my question, I mean, for Raju, maybe Doc uh, or anyone is, I know that, uh, there's some discussion from the Biden administration, like a uh, Blinken speech, uh, talking about a new foreign policy and Biden, anything Blinken talking about Bidenomics and we need to move away from even like unlimited free trade. And, um, and then, yeah, of course, what we talked about before last week, I think about labor, the fact that they're trying to promote or organize labor and Biden and so on. So, uh, my question is, how seriously do you think the elite, you know, Biden and the, the U.S., current U.S. state and maybe the West are taking this, uh, the proposals that uh, Wolf is making? And 
is is you know for example like the bernie sanders aoc jacobin thing is it part of this project to try to you know move this to into that direction um or is this still something that's just a you know an idea that's being put out there and an active uh debate that's happening <laughs> may, may, may you rephrase that question, Jahan? Um, oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. I was just, maybe I was sharing my thought process and it wasn't a question, wasn't clear, but basically is uh, my question is how seriously is this, is his proposal, his analysis and his proposal being taken by the Western elites? Like, is this something that actively the Biden administration uh, is, is trying to move in the direction of, as evidenced by this whole uh, Bidenomics and what Blinken has been saying about some, some similar points have been, I've heard them make. So that was my question. Well, I think uh, just a quick thing, you know, it seems to me that Martin Wolf has been downgraded in terms of the opinion page of the financial times. Um, People such as Edward Luce, uh, Gideon Rockman, uh, and others that are more pro-U.S. elites have been upgraded. Now, he still appears, but he's way down. And I remember a few years ago, you couldn't open up the opinion page without Martin Wolf being the first person. So I think at least from the Financial Times' point of view, uh, Martin Wolf's opinions are not uh, in line with where they're going. And I think that has something to do with the neoconservative or pro-war stance that the uh, Financial Times is taking, uh, where it reads more like the New York Times or the Washington Post than like the Financial Times or even a British newspaper. Uh, but, and, and so I, I would therefore say, and I think Raju would agree with me here, that at best, Martin Wolf uh, represents a very tiny minority within the ruling elite. Uh, and Martin Wolf, and, and as you as Raju, as you pointed out in your review, he doesn't like Trump, but Trump is not the cause of the upheaval. And he points, and this is where you know um, one uh, can appreciate Martin Wolf, even over these so-called leftists. And I, I think he's right about the leftists as becoming this um, uh, highly educated. To be a leftist, you have to have a college degree these days. Uh, and it would be even better if you had a graduate degree, and even better still if you have a PhD. That's almost a, uh, a requirement to come into the doors of leftism. Which, And so therefore, you get this split between the left and the labor, not the labor movement as much as the working class. By the way, this thesis is put forward by Richard Rorty in his book 
called um, uh, Achieving Our Nation, and also by Lynn, I forget his first name now, in his book on the new class struggle. Michael uh, Lynn. Huh? Mike, uh, yeah, he's in there. Michael Lynn, Michael Lynn, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, uh, so Wolf is saying, I mean, he literally is saying uh, that this, these populist movements, which are not just in the United States, but are more intense in the United States, uh, are the result of deindustrialization, economic inequality, uh, and the policies of the ruling elite. And he is trying to bring the, the ruling class back to uh, the New Deal or FDR. But the other thing is, I think, and I, Raj, I don't know whether he says this in the book. I just pick it up in his uh, uh, writing in the Financial Times. He is not that hopeful. It's like him saying, I will present what is our only rational option. You know, uh, and most of you won't agree with me. Uh, and I don't think you guys who are people, and this, this generational thing I think is very important. Most of the people in the highest positions are of a generation beforehand. And they tend to be very reckless, very narcissistic, uh, all educated at elite Ivy League or elite British universities, no contact with working people, and uh, arrogant and all that type of thing. And he doesn't have much hope for them or that they their leadership will be able to save the system. Uh, so I don't know how you feel about that, Raju. Oh, by the way, Johan, you 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 frozen on the screen. Maybe you want to do something about it. Yeah, I think I think I think that's I think he is very pessimistic, um, and uh, you know, I mean, he's not. And I think you're absolutely. I mean, you know, when you read his book, I mean, you're surprised by. Uh, and that's why I wanted to say that it's honest because you're surprised by how critical he is of the ruling elite, you know, and he doesn't, um, um, he doesn't, and, you know, and his kind of FDR reform agenda, whether it, you know, works or, you know, whether it's workable or not in this time, and that's a discussion to be had. But, uh, you know, the fact that he is making that reference and the fact that, uh, I mean, it's clear to him that a lot of things need to be changed. And uh, I mean, you know, he's obviously intelligent enough to, you know, see the kind of flaw in his argument, which is that, you know, if it's the ruling elite, as he argues, that has brought things to this situation, you know, to this moment, uh, then it's not going to be the ruling elite that has the capacity to take it out of it, you know. And, uh, and so I think that's probably his cause for pessimism. And uh, I do think, I also agree with what you were saying earlier, I don't think that Blinken and so on, um, uh, Bidenomics uh, comes anywhere near, uh, you know, the way he describes the crisis. I do think it's significant, you know, that speech that Blinken gave, where, you know, even at that level in the ruling class now, they've had to acknowledge um, basically how, 
uh, the disastrous effects of uh, you know what was called neoliberalism um, and that they have to move away from it uh, but i don't think what they're proposing is um, anywhere as ambitious as what you know wolf tries to argue in his book Oh, I just wanted to add that I had come across an interview that Martin Wolf did with the New York Times recently on like the Ezra Klein podcast. And it was it was not Ezra Klein himself, but like someone filling in for Ezra. Hey Jeremiah, could you speak up? You're not coming across too clear. Just speak a little clearly. Okay. Clearly. Um yeah, I was just saying that I came across an interview that Martin Wolf did with the New York Times on the Ezra Klein podcast. And they asked him kind of like a not softball question, but they were like, so how much do you think you agree with the Biden administration in terms of their diagnosis of the problem, but basically being like kind of nudging him to kind of be supportive of Biden. And he's very um, kind of diplomatic, but basically he says, I don't think that what they're doing is essentially going to achieve what I think needs to be accomplished. And he says, he says, well, essentially that, yeah, like, I think that they're expecting too much from what is essentially an industrial policy. It's multifaceted, but nonetheless, they're expecting too much. And in particular, I think that they won't end up generating anything like the scale of permanent employment that they're hoping for, and that they won't generate genuinely globally competitive industries to the extent that they want. And um, basically, he is also trying to show that there's a difference between like the Biden, like the Biden, Bidenomics and also the kind of national security policy as it's like there's a difference between the kind of like the quote unquote national security aspect of it, which is the real driving force behind a lot of the need to kind of bring back some jobs like semiconductor jobs, for instance, like they want to bring back to the United States. But that's only because China has such a huge role in terms of semi semiconductor production. But that's really less about reindustrializing America, and it's more about kind of a, a security, a security objective. Um, but yeah, he's very skeptical. Basically, he says like I'm very skeptical of what the Biden administration is doing. Um, and yeah, I think related to that, I also wanted to ask. Um, yeah, like I was curious if he talks more about the left, I guess, and mm -hmm. how he sees the role of the left in terms of this broader landscape which also goes back to um like previous things that have come up in the conversation today and then yeah i guess the question of like who does he <clears throat> like how do you get the sense of like who is it that he envis envisages or envisions um like who will actually carry out these kinds of changes um which i guess we've already talked about but like how does he actually articulate that like who will actually carry out the kinds of changes that he would hope mm -hmm. for um but yeah, I was just curious about that. Yeah, if I could just say, I think that's you know a very interesting point, and uh, uh, also with reference to something that uh, uh, Doc brought up about Richard Rorty and Michael Lynn, um, and uh, uh, I think uh, you know Michael Lynn, Lynn's book. So I mean, Martin Wolf himself, you know, I think I've. I've wrote, written a little bit in the review, you know, how he sees this whole thing of the educated left, how it's divorced from the working class. And, uh, you know, it's also consistent, I think, with a lot of polling data that now sees that 
you know, the way to nowadays judge a lot of political opinions in the U.S. is whether you're college educated or not. Um, you know, that has become a big marker uh, for how you um, uh, view, you know, you view or your political opinions. So, uh, and Michael Lind in his book really argues for, um, uh, you know, a similar thing. Uh, but in particular, I think Michael Lind discusses the left much more than Martin Wolf does. And Michael Lind really traces the, uh, you know, kind of uh, how the left devolved. He really traces that to the Frankfurt School. And uh, uh, he in, brings up, for example, Adorno's analysis of fascism and how uh, so much of it kind of blame the working class for, you know, the Frankfurt School in particular, blame the German working class for uh, German fascism, uh, rather than, you know, blaming the uh, uh, big bourgeoisie, the capitalists, and, um, you know, even the petty bourgeoisie to some extent, uh, how they blamed all of it on the working class, and then use techniques of Freudian psychoanalysis to show why the working class was so backward and corrupted and so on um, and then he says that that kind of uh, uh, analysis is something that's being used today again uh, to you know blame the working class to again talk about all kinds of um, you know psychoanalysis or cultural reasons for why the working class is backward and uh, uh, you know i think that ties in very much with what we were discussing in the beginning uh, about the left and what we have been discussing for a while. Um, but yeah, I think that's a very, very interesting point of how, you know, just how how the left has come to this point where it finds itself in total opposition uh, to the working class and to the people as a whole. I uh, I greatly uh, appreciated uh, this review, Raju. Uh, I'm, I'm sure this was uh, a long read. Uh, the uh, what I enjoy out of uh, reading uh, anything about Martin Wolf is uh, even though he uh, is a huge defender of uh, Western uh, the West, uh, he can be more earnest in understanding it to make it better, which is which is a lot more than you get from other people. Uh, my consideration with uh, uh, the way he analyzes the uh the crisis of the west and the way out is uh uh it, it, it i i like that you pointed that he didn't really take into consideration the like military uh and like the forever wars uh as uh uh one of the greatest threats to uh american democracy and uh it really reminds me uh of uh nekrumah's analysis of uh post-World War II and uh, uh, neo neocolonialism, where he basically said that uh, in order to kind of deal with the internal problems, the, the uh, Europeans basically decided to give their people a little bit of a higher share of the spoils of, uh, of Africa and, and wh wherever else they had uh, uh, neocolonial power. Uh, is, uh, is it kind of what more or less... Uh, Martin Wolf uh, has in mind, uh, implicitly or explicitly. Uh, I know he is, he's uh, FDR New Deal is. Uh, I mean that, that was a great period in in American history that we looked at through Du Bois. But uh, uh, it, it, at least in that time period, uh, the United States was not the 
uh, greatest threat to uh, world peace and uh, like the, that global imperial power that it is today. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand uh, where he places the United States uh, with the rest of the world and the path and how that relates to the path for the American people. Well, I think other people, I mean, that's not something he specifically addresses in the book. So, you know, I think other people should say also, um, but, you know, I mean, I, I just think, I think the crisis today is different from the crisis then, you know, and I don't know if the system can be saved in the same way. Um, it's, uh, and especially, you know, the United States kind of came out unscathed out of World War II. Um, and uh, uh, it was in a position to save the system. Uh, but today you don't have any country which is in that kind of position. I mean, within the, you know, among the Western capitalist nations, which is in, a, in that kind of position. So yeah, that's all I would say. But Can I ask you a question, Raju? Does he talk yeah. about de-dollarization in the book? That's, that's interesting. I mean, not so much actually, now that you mention it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's an interesting point. He doesn't, uh, uh, you know, I'll have to go back and check to make sure, but from what I remember, he doesn't actually talk about it. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, I would just say one thing, apropos what uh, Eddie is talking about. For the ruling elites of the West, the world is much smaller today than it was 50, 70 years ago, not to mention 100 years, 150 years ago, when colonialism was ascending. The world was large for them. Now the world is closing in on them. And um, I'm certain that besides, you know, if, from the standpoint of the ruling class, uh, which is a tiny group of people, by the way, uh, the ruling elite, if you want to call them that, I think the impact of this shrinking world, their shrinking world, is having profound psychological impacts upon them. Um, I don't know, because they do not have the ideological flexibility or the ideological sophistication to think in ways that Wolf wants them to think, because they're in a, a psychological crisis, a crisis of identity, a crisis of who they are. And you take a person like an Anthony Blinken or um, what's the other one, the National Security Advisor, Sullivan, Jake Sullivan, or a Hillary Clinton, um, or a Barack Obama for that matter. How do they face a world where the majority of people are hostile to them? They don't have many friends. Uh, and um, I think someone, I think Eddie mentioned with the war in Ukraine, it really showed that most nations and most leaders don't really like the West because of a certain uh, character traits 
that are also tied up with white supremacy uh, and racism and uh, and so on. I mean, I, I just think, I don't know how you feel about it. What happens to a ruling elite who now face a world that is shrinking for them? I put that question to Raju. reason I did, Raju, because you mentioned Adorno and the, the Frankfurt School and the turn to Freudian psychoanalysis to explain the rise of fascism as a product of the working class and its needs, psychological needs. But suppose we flip the script. Right. Try to understand <laughs> the, the deep psychological problems, delusional uh, even uh, behavior of the ruling elites. Right, right. No, I think that's, uh, um, you know, very accurate. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I, and I think that's also part of the pessimism of, uh, you know, Martin Bull's book, um, kind of seeing the um, uh, I mean, I agree with you. It's just the way they carry themselves and the way they uh, talk, and um, uh, it's uh, this. Yeah, I, you know, it's really something going on. And uh, I have to say, I guess because you know, uh, well, Martin Wolf has access to a lot of these uh, spaces and so on. Um, uh, you know, sometimes uh, I think. Uh, um, sometimes, I mean, not often, but sometimes he also kind of relapses into, uh, you know, this way of thinking and uh, saying things that are a bit delusional. I mean, you know, like sometimes in the book, he starts referring to the World Happiness Index and how, you know, all these countries, Norway and Sweden are so happy and that proves that liberal democracy, will, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's just, uh, 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 I mean, it's, it's I, I mean it's an existential crisis for the system and it's uh, 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 you know I think the way also you know the way he's phrasing it you know our enlightenment values are under threat um, I mean it's they're really seeing it or at least Wolf is really seeing it as a civilizational crisis and uh, uh, that means that you know the um, uh, you know we refer to Baldwin's uh, concept as the you know last white nation. Um, and, uh, I mean, this may be the last, uh, ruling elite of this form. I mean, it may just become unsustainable to have a ruling elite, um, uh, uh, of the kind that we are seeing today and, uh, what effect that has, uh, I agree with you, you know, the, uh, flipping over and doing a psychoanalysis of the ruling elites is, I mean, it might be needed because uh, the other thing is that they are also just so prone to behaving in, you know, very, very irrational ways. I mean, to, you know, I'm willing to destroy the world rather than not have me be at the center of it. I, if you don't mind, if nobody, you know, you know, the movie, I think 1964 movie, Dr. Strange Love, this strange, delusional, crazy scientist, but that might be a metaphor for the ruling class because 
you're doing things that don't make sense. Why would you threaten China over Taiwan, where you've already admitted that Taiwan is a part of China, legally, politically? That's a treaty. It's not just a handshake. You know, the terms of the establishment of diplomatic relations between the United States and the People's Republic of China in 1979 was that the United States agreed that Taiwan was part of China legally. That's an agreement. And now you think, and it is delusional, China is not Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, and, and so there is something deeply troubling about this ruling elite. It's something wrong here, and it's more than ideology. And I agree, civilization, and they cannot give up on what they think is liberal democracy, which is another way of them talking about Western civilization. They're not, I mean, I mean, we can readily acknowledge the achievements of Western civilization. Its democracy and its democratic institutions are not the greatest achievement. If you gave me a choice between John Locke or John Stuart Mill and Beethoven or Hegel, I take Beethoven and Hegel. That's what will last. Liberal, quote, liberal democracy, which is the rule of a small group and then the export of that all over the world in the colonial wars and yada, 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 yada. We can go on and on and on. So the world is not saying that Western civilization must be totally rejected. They are saying that the rule of those who claim to do it in the name of democracy has to be ended. And increasing, and this, the world closing in on them, that's what this Trump movement represents. I mean, I mean, why do you keep, you know, poking this uh, thousand pound bear? He's only going to get stronger and more aggressive and attack you back, especially now when they see, and these poll numbers convince Trump and, and his, his followers, if you want to put it that way, that they are winning, that the more you attack us, the more we win, but yet you keep attacking him. You know, if they were rational, but it's because the world is closing in. They don't have absolute power, even in their own country. Uh, I think, you know, I think this is something we have to talk about. By the way, uh, Jahan and, and uh, Neha, you know, when we talk about uh, nonviolence as an instrument of the revolutionary and progressive masses in their fight, you know what I'm saying? It is true. It is the appeal to ideology, to the people, to their morality, to their potentiality. 
and it closes the door increasingly on the ruling class. That's what happened in the civil rights movement, incomplete, but the world had closed in on them. Africa and Asia were not willing to accept that the United States is the quote, great democracy and black people can't vote in Washington DC, which is the capital of the great democracy. And black people and their allies were not going to accept it any longer. So the world, so they had to come to a compromise, a rapprochement with the black masses. You know what I'm saying? Without relinquishing their power, today it is more existential. And I can understand Wolf. And he's talking about the United States. He's in England. He ain't writing about England or Europe. He's writing about the United States. If the US falls, Western quote democracy or the Western ruling class cannot stand up to a world where India, China, well, that's 40% of the world's population right there. I mean, and then Africa, that's another, what, 20%. So, I mean, what do you have left? <laughs> and then, of course, just one thing I'd like to say, two things, de-dollarization, which is connected to the petrodollar. Hence, and you know, this, the, the standing of the U.S. dollar in world trade and finance uh, and so on is the result of a treaty and agreement between Saudi Arabia and the United States. That Saudi Arabia would only sell its oil, Saudi Arabia the major exporter of oil, in dollars. Which means that if India wants to buy uh, oil from Saudi Arabia, it has to first buy dollars from the Federal Reserve or the Treasury so it can buy oil in dollars from Saudi Arabia. All of these mediations, all of these mediations that uphold the exorbitant privilege of the US dollar, it's oil. Now, what does it mean? Saudi Arabia has gone to the other side. Now I'm really up Shit's Creek without a paddle. What do, the world has shrunk. It is not, and they have, they were not educated. Well, they all went to Ivy League schools. They party, smoke weed, snorted cocaine, and did, you know, did, did what the elite do. You know what I'm saying, going to rehab. But they have no way of dealing with this. I, my last point, I looked at Anthony Blinken and Janet Yellen. When they were over here, they, they Big Willie talked. They all, you know, I'm, I'm going to go there and tell uh, Xi Jinping what I think of him. When they went up in there, they were like bowing and scraping. And, and it was like, Blinken was like a, a, a little boy facing the retribution of his father. Sit down, I'm gonna tell you what we're going to do, and you take that back to the ruling class of the United States. It was all there. Or, just one other thing, if you don't mind me saying, 
Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. Cat, he ain't even 40 years old yet. Not even fucking 40 years old. And when Xi Jinping came to Saudi Arabia, it was like a celebration of life. You know, it was like a Muslim holiday. It was so lavish and so warm. When Biden came there, he didn't even give him a fist bump. He gave him an elbow. Get up. Hey, okay, dog, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, like they say, a picture is worth a thousand words, or really a whole book, tell you the truth. I mean, what? There it is. On the stage of history, it is played out. Now that, you know, now they're going to talk about artificial. Don't change the subject. They want to talk about, oh, this is the hottest summer of all time. And, you know, and then don't nobody trust them. It's been hot for a long time. <laughs> but change the subject. Bring it to a narrative that we, that we construct. The whole climate change narrative is a Western narrative, an American narrative. For what purpose? Democracy is a U.S. narrative. For what purpose? That's, I mean, frankly, I just say, they're trying to find a way out of this by using the tools of postmodernism narrative. <laughs> That's, <laughs> Adorno and them are like, you know, children compared to the postmodernists. Everything is a narrative. You know, oh, I'm shooting fentanyl down here in Kensington. Oh, that's a wonderful narrative. <laughs> Every, but they cannot talk their way out of this crisis. It is a different world. And it's a different U.S. It's a different American people in becoming. My being is in my becoming. And if you can't understand basic Hegel, you have no way of doing this kind of analysis. And this is a problem I think I find with, with Wolf. He has abandoned his you know, youthful Marxism and philosophy, and he's become a uh, pretty much a, a Keynesian, a Keynesian with, uh, <laughs> with, as the Chinese say, with uh, neoliberal uh, uh, characteristics. <laughs> I'll shut up. Go. Well, I, I was just going to say that I, you know, this whole thing of the world closing in, I think. It's also this, uh, uh, you know, this new democratic upsurge where you have the Chinese lifting all these people out of poverty. And so suddenly you have all these people who have a say, you know, who have a say in the world, all these people who um, are no longer uh, being, um, uh, you know, the way it was under colonialism, the way it was under, uh, suddenly you have a very, very new kind of world. And uh, you're right, the way they uh, talk about it, well, for them, Russia is authoritarian, right? China is authoritarian. India is an illiberal democracy. 
you know <laughs> africa as well but uh, uh, I, i mean what i find so interesting is how uh, but then inside the west there's also a liberal democracy you know and it's uh, ugly head you know so basically they've left out all of the world uh, except them and uh, but it's but it's an existential crisis for them and their class and uh, uh, it's uh, you know between the two my feeling still is and it's where you know how they talk about the two in the same way the world is becoming authoritarian but then we have the i think between the two they see the greater challenge as the domestic one um i think they have a sense that they can handle things internationally uh, and i don't know if that's true or not but i think that's how they view it if but the domestic challenge is totally you know um uh, that would be uh, that is really existential for them and i think that really goes into what you're saying about the american people and um you know what we were discussing earlier how essential the role of the american people becomes in this time uh, i mean i think it's hard to understate just uh, um uh, it's all you know it's uh, you know the way we've been talking you can just sort of see it the fate of the world hangs in balance and then you have this evolving changing american people and where they're going to turn um yeah Yes, well, uh, you know, this is actually a very interesting conversation, speaking of the psychology of the elites, uh, because what it's making me think is, you know, maybe perhaps drawing from Baldwin, the fact that they don't want to ever take responsibility. They don't want to ever deal with the real consequences of the actions that they take. And, you know, like we were discussing, I mean, starting with the world, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, we discussed earlier how i mean he's young he's in his 30s i believe i was reading that now even a lot of the the ministers in the saudi government are all basically people in their 30s or 40s it's been a total shift but the the a, a lot of it is because uh, this is something we talk about in free school i haven't seen this really written about but there must be a great psychological and even social impact of the iraq war and the destruction of iraq on the psyche of people like Mohammed bin Salman and the masses in Saudi Arabia. And they realize that, okay, now today we're in the good books of America, but we literally saw our Northern neighbor destroyed, you know, in one, in one go. And then similarly uh, you talk about, Oh, we talked about Pakistan and uh, Imran Khan, the impact of the Afghan war, how that destroyed and destabilized that region and Pakistan, which was a bulwark of America. Now among the masses, there is a great anger at what happened. and the rise of a new populist movement which they may try to shut down using courts and so on but and I don't think that will work in the long run and then in uh Africa and West Africa the destruction of Libya which is direct, and then how that destabilized the Sahel region and these countries which we were discussing uh Mali Burkina Faso Niger and I saw the video of the uh, president of uh, Burkina Faso the young uh, captain in Russia and he looked so intense the way he's he's also i think about 34 i think he's the young world's youngest president about 34 looked so intense and i was reading about him uh, he basically uh in the army was was one of the people fighting in the front lines against the militancy that grew because of the destruction of libya and that the west was really promoting so that france and the us could use it as an excuse to uh, increase their military presence in countries like burkina faso but when he spoke with this intense look in russia and he talks about uh Africans and Russians are the forgotten peoples of the world 
And we are basically, we are no longer going to be forgotten in the history books of the West. And when he says that, uh, he basically said, well, slaves who do not revolt do not deserve pity. That's my message to the African Union and to all neo-colonial forces in Africa. We will revolt. And, uh, and, but the West, psychologically, the Western elites, like you're saying, Blinkens and the Bidens, they can't really accept, oh no, it's not because of us, our war on terror, our destruct regime change wars, our forever wars. And then the, I agree with Raju, the difficult thing, which they don't know how to fight at all, is at home. They don't want to deal with the consequences of, oh, we deindustrialized America just to increase our profits so we could do well. We're not going to accept the anger of the American people resulting from that, the anger resulting from a Kensington, resulting from a Beaver, Pennsylvania, Butler, Pennsylvania, uh, resulting from the poverty in places like Michigan and so on. And uh, that's, you know, Trump, the, the, the manifestation of that anger and that rejection and that, you know, people don't want to vote in the Democratic primary. So they so they uh, they're just completely incapable of comprehending. And, and you know, I, I sometimes I think maybe they do believe the stuff they say when they're like, oh, OK, this is because of uh, a toxic masculinity. Oh, this is because of, uh, I don't know, black and Latinos are adopting white supremacy by going against Biden. This is like these ridiculous. Oh, actually, college educated whites are to the left of black people on race are more anti-racist. <laughs> I guess all you could say is they, you know, they're drinking their own Kool-Aid, I guess, because the alternative would be accept responsibility, accept the consequences of their actions. But no, actually, one thing Tucker says, he says, the world is not divided between those who believe in God and don't believe in God. It's divided between those who think they are God and those who don't think they're God. And our elites think they are God, that they can do whatever they want and they will never be held to account for any of their actions. And that whenever they want, they can redefine the basic meanings of words and so on. So. I think, you know, this is how I'm seeing the situation. <laughs> hey, Joe, why don't you continue, man? It's very, very exhilarating. You didn't have to stop, brother. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just, I'm just, you know, connecting these dots based on what you said. It's a, it's a very good exercise. I encourage other people to participate in this exercise of flipping the script. It's like we need to psychoanalyze. The elites and, and you know what's up with this Barbie movie being put out there? Are we seriously gonna gonna dumb down people and think that you know that's what people need in the in the midst of all this pain and all this chaos? We need a Barbie movie and have men and women dress up in pink and identify themselves with children's toys. I mean that's also the next level. <laughs> Not even cartoon characters, children's toys. You know. Uh, <laughs> so, so Todd showed me a really cool review of Barbie called the subversive view review if you want to look it up on YouTube but uh you know the Barbie movie is basically Mattel's way of rebranding Barbie for a more modern woman so before Barbie you know Barbie Kate takes care of Barbie house Barbie has Barbie car but you know women can't afford Barbie house and Barbie car anymore so they have to update the brand and, you know, Mattel is going to make a lot of money about it. But I, I still hope to see Barbie because I want to find out what Kennergy is all about. <laughs> what is, well, perhaps, maybe if someone is willing to watch it, they can at least share the cult, the reasons it's being put out and the cultural, you know, strategy of the elites with that movie. Well, we, we're probably close to finishing. So I quickly wanted to say a few things about my reflections about the review. 
um most of the things have already been said but i just wanted to reiterate that i really liked you know that part well it's a review of what martin wolf says but even the fact that he identifies the universities and academia in general as sort of like the birthplace of a new left or an intellectual left which then goes on which 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 is not a le- which is not the left because it stands for you know the working class people but it's the left because it's the left like it's it's the left by definition and then it goes on to then dominate the ideological landscape and the narratives and you know it reminded me so much of Gerald Horn for instance right i mean people ca- characters like this who basically even will go to the extent of completely declaring um, the american people as irredeemable and even the majority of the american working class as irredeemable and racist and settlers in order to sort of i guess even to um keep up their position as you know a left leftist intellectual or one who is down with the struggle or whatever and the other thing i wanted to say is i really appreciated what raju said in his review about the civil rights movement and king and the fact that you know martin wolf does do a m- much better job than so many other analysts in actually identifying what the issues are what the critical contradictions are that need to be worked out but then again you know is again so out of touch with the history itself to not recognize that there has been a, demo- a, a democratic struggle in this country two democratic struggles in the country and then the most recent one uh with Martin Luther King Jr and the civil rights movement actually leading to a new idea of citizenship and you know what equality means what uh what civil rights even mean so if you know if you identified correctly and i i'm not articulating this the best but if you identified correctly the domestic inequality is one of the chief reasons for this you know crisis that the american uh, nation finds itself in then you would like you know you would expect that this analysis would turn back to the period which was talking about wh- where this inequality stems from and a new idea of citizenship and civil rights um and yeah i mean this just brings i mean this just again it's it's a testimony to how like viciously you know the black freedom movement has been suppressed and black leaders have been suppressed in this country such that this history that we have studied and we have discussed so much that comes naturally to us to think to or to look to when you are considering what can we do what is the way forward today like raju says in his review chaos or community what is the path forward it's just this history and this framework is such so inaccessible um to the vast majority of people because it has been suppressed and erased to such a large extent and trivialized um that's the heartbreaking part um yeah i just wanted to say that before we ended can, can i just build i know it's late and i know i'm talking too much this is so important that you don't get roe v wade without the civil rights act of 1964 and the voting rights act of 1965 it is it creates the political moment it expanded rights for all people but not just rights based in 
the Constitution and constitutional law, people, and especially a lot of so-called black radicals, get it wrong and wrong and wrong, as though the civil rights movement was a only a civil rights movement, and what we're fighting for ultimately is human rights. No, homie, it was human rights because it superseded only the rights of black people and to the rights of all people in the United States, including immigrants, by the way. The Immigration Law of 1968 is, is a part of the civil rights legislation. Everything changes. The Supreme Court had to then think differently. Having abandoned the civil rights revolution, the third American revolution makes possible a quote, reinterpretation of laws and decisions made by the Supreme Court in the period of the upsurge. The answer is not legal decisions and the Supreme Court. The answer is in a political realignment and we are now at the beginning of it. This is the thing, however. This ruling class is so reckless that they would initiate a civil war in the hope of, 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 of undermining what they call a right-wing movement. It is not a right-wing movement. That's a smear campaign. And uh, desperate people do desperate things, and they are very desperate. Um, you know, if you look at a chess board, a chess game, they're not that far removed from checkmate. They really aren't. Too many forces are conspiring in a historical sense against them. It's just, I agree with Raju, you know, uh, can you reform a system that is this far gone? And can you reform a system this far gone when the people who at the commanding heights of the system don't want reform? They'd rather fight than compromise. Okay, you want to fight? It's a like you want to fight China? It's a losing proposition. You can't win. The Chinese people are united. The American people are not. They thought they were going to take Russia down. Oh, it was just a, a gas station posing as a nation. Well, you see where that got you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I, I. Hey, Martin, what you made a good try, you're just, you know, trying to talk reasonably to people who can only think in clown terms, performative terms. You know, it's not the substance of who you, it's how you appear. The stage of history is not interested in what you look like. You know, history is interested in the substance of what you are, ideas. And that's why the ideological struggle 
history. And I hate to put it this way. Hegel had it right. Ideas move history. Clear ideas. This is where we are. It's so obvious. And you can see, uh, and this is my last one, I'm going to shut my mouth. It is so obvious who is leaving the stage of history and who is entering the stage of history. You know, you get Shankara, Bashkar Shankara, highly educated, super articulate, but you're leaving the stage of history. History is impatient with your type of people. Communist Party, it's over. You know, uh, it's over for you all. Democratic Socialists of America, it's over. It's only a matter of time. Uh, and as the ruling class goes down, you're going to go down. You know? And um, and all you know to the left, you know all of these intellectuals. The best advice I could give them is find a good psychiatrist or get some decent meds. Uh, and you know I don't want you to go towards fentanyl, but if that's your your drug of choice, go ahead. You don't have a future in the world that is emerging. You know, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm quite impatient. I was talking to uh, Michelle early in the morning. You know, I feel sometimes I'm too impatient with these intellectuals, these leftists and so on. I guess what I'm impatient with, and I guess history is also impatient with them, the, what, what, what they used to call a Bonapartist, uh, I am the state and the state is me. The way the left, I am the left and you can't, uh, how dare you challenge my credentials as the left. You know, that's, the, that's their stand. Uh, but that is, how, how do you put it? Uh, uh, that, that is a way of you doing yourself in, you know, that type of uh, self-absorbed narcissism. I am, it is, I represent the left. You listen to Bashkar Sankara. I mean, I mean, it's no humility, no, um, thinking, well, maybe we have to consider many things. What about the working people? You know, the working class has left the Democratic Party. Everybody fucking knows that. But the DSA is saying, we're going to represent the opposition in the Democratic Well, no, the, the working class ain't their hometown. They left you. You know what I'm saying? And black folk are trying to find and exit as we speak. But you don't know how to think about that. You're so fucking smart with your other smart alecky friends that you don't know how to think about that black man or black woman 
unemployed and poor, trying to make a way out of no way. And you telling them, vote the way you've been voting? No, they ain't going to do it. They ain't going to do it, hometown. And so, you know, I recommend, you know, uh, I know you all, you know, get a good psychiatrist because you're going to lose your mind if you ain't already lost it. The world ain't, the world don't give a fuck about you and what you think and how good you talk and how, how sophisticated and how much the ruling class is giving, uh, putting you on a perch and making, giving you a lot of money. The world don't care about you. Um, yeah, I can read some more, some more comments. Um, as we're coming to the end, but um, Future Homestead asked earlier, do you have any thoughts on the attempt by the ruling class to present a quote on alternative through this idea of quote unquote stakeholder capitalism, um, which I think is something that comes from like the World Economic Forum, like stakeholder capitalism as opposed to shareholder capitalism, which I think oh. we've covered before in free school. Uh, Ryan Wagner says, the path suggested by Martin Wolf sounds like a petite bourgeoisie appeal to the bourgeoisie to be nicer, which will no doubt go unheard. Um, and he's saying Raju's article is a good criticism. Then there's a discussion between Todd Doherty and Peter Homestead about nonviolence um, in terms mm. of, uh, so Future Homestead asked, do we mean peace and nonviolence in the context of the current moment? Because surely we do not condemn violence in past revolutions and instead recognize their necessity. And then Todd says, um, yes, um, we're talking about nonviolence in the current moment as engaged by Dr. King. Um, and I think that that's an interesting question because you know how even with the Oppenheimer stuff, like part of the claim that's being made is that the atomic bomb and fission was the most important invention of the 20th century. But someone like Diane Nash saying that the most important invention of the 20th century was actually nonviolence. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like we're yeah. still we have still yet to see the full fruits of that invention mm -hmm. in terms of the course of human history. Science. And yeah, so a lot of this is science. Um, and yeah, so further discussions on that, like, yeah, like essentially how do we respond to the violent reaction of the state, which is a much larger question, which I think we've, we've touched on before, like nonviolence, but then the state as, you know, weaponizing instruments of violence. But also um, there's a difference between yeah. nonviolence and pacifism. Right. Um, yeah. And then Future Homestead says that Obama had a dinner with Biden in June, warning him that he thought Trump could win. And it's interesting that Obama can somehow continues to remain relevant in politics after all of these years. Um, BK says that the ruling elite will resort to even more extreme violence, unfortunately, but hopefully not. Um, the elite may manufacture a global crisis that threatens people's access to fundamental resources of survival and then step in to pose as the savior. This is an effort to buy themselves more time, but however, it may be too late. Too many of their lives have already been exposed. Um, Future Homestead says that, uh, is saying just that the current young leader of Burkina Faso is an amazing figure. His speech and reference to the modern version of slavery in Africa was so powerful. Mm. And then Liat Betra um, says, good morning from California. I tuned in a bit later this week, and I'm looking forward to going back to watch Doc's 
opening remarks from today. Um, and then going to the discussion of the psychosis of the ruling class, it seems that there is every day more evidence that their brains are well and truly boggled by the people in this country. Just look this week at the New York Times where David Brooks wrote in an op-ed titled, quote, what if we're the bad guys here? In which David Brooks treats, uh, under, in which he basically tries to understand the Trump movement as a thought experiment on one level, it's a surprising piece in which he manages to say quiet parts out loud, i.e. the fact that the masses of people have been locked out of any meaningful social and economic mobility or stability for that matter, under the terms set by especially this generation of the ruling elite. But at the end, David Brooks, uh, he basically acknowledges that the whole exercise was actually just thinly disguised clickbait uh, and then forcibly reaffirms that actually anti-Trumpers or or that maybe that anti-Trumpers are on the right side of history because Trump is a monster, monster, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think people like David Brooks can deal well with cognitive dissonance, um, BK adds, but are the elites fueling this global division throughout nations in order to self-destruct the current global infrastructure in order to more easily usher in a new global infrastructure and this new global infrastructure having a uh, foundation in uh, digital technology, blockchain, AI, mm. and kind of like the green uh, uh, environmental stuff. In other words, let the slaves infight amongst themselves and reduce their numbers so we have less resistance while implementing this new world order. Mm. Um, but then Future Home said responds, luckily BK, it seems the masses are catching on to the insane plans of the ruling elite and resisting them. Uh, where Pilgrim says hello, um, and then Ryan Wagner and Christopher Romero, just like what Doc was saying, saying, let them know, Doc, and go off. Um, go off. <laughs> go off. They're saying, they're saying, let them know, Dr. Montero, and they're saying, go off, Dr. Montero. You have to yeah, read it should with. should have given more inflection to it. They're <laughs> saying it in a positive sense. Um, yeah, they're, oh yeah, Pudrum says that. They were writing a segment on global TV yesterday about eating bugs uh, and another about uh, paying with like your your palm print or something. So there's a lot of, I feel like in America, there's a lot of discourse around like the World Economic Forum and all these like kind of new world order stuff about like digital technology, like central bank currencies, like digital currencies, stuff like that, like getting people to eat bugs instead of uh, meat protein, stuff like that. And I think oh, it's... Wow part of the larger, like essentially part of the larger collapse of legitimacy of the ruling elite in which anything which is pushed forward is like everything, everything is essentially in question by like ordinary people. And there is zero trust at all in terms of the ruling mm. elite towards um, any narratives that are pushed out. And I think that it's interesting. I think what was brought up earlier in terms of, you know, part of the reason why maybe the ruling, the ruling elite have gotten high on their own supply is that they have needed to focus so much on narrative in order to basically control the the masses of the American people in order to reassert in order to assert their legitimacy. And they have focused so much on the narrative that it's like become their life world itself are these narratives mm. that they have created to basically manage the masses. Mm. And that's part of the reason why there's this psychosis or this kind of like cognitive dissonance that they can't even deal with, like the basically what's happening. And that's that's why I, I even thought, you know this article about like Trump breaking the laws of political physics 
is that they cannot come to grapple they are cannot come to grips with the fact that the people are developing and following a different logic than the one that the ruling elite has tried to use to overdetermine essentially the course of human history all of this time and so yeah like it's very appropriate for us to talk about hegel and logic and systems of logic mm -hmm. but essentially the logic of history and the logic of the people which is yeah. still emerging mm -hmm. um and I, I just had one one last thought in which um you know the point that doc had brought up earlier in terms of you know the the assassinations of king and jfk and um you know malcolm x and Matt drivers and all these people i think framing that as a coup d'etat is interesting because i think yeah. i feel like it's one it's like basically i feel like what we're not arguing is that let's say to to say a coup d'etat might get people to think for instance that the civil rights movement had quote unquote achieved state power and that the coup d'etat was therefore a coup against the achievement of a state power but i feel like what we're actually saying is more that there is a very unique historical and political process that was unfolding during the civil rights movement and the revolution of that, of that time, which is that essentially that what the civil rights movement was able to achieve was essentially like a mass democratic people's movement, which was led by figures like King, in which rather than at that time achieving state power as such, it was more about a people's movement that was uh, then directing, essentially playing a dominant role in some kind of uh, directing the course of American life from below. And that the coup was essentially against this people's movement and not necessarily like a movement that would achieve state power but actually the coup we have to understand the coup in terms of a movement that was essentially guiding and directing uh american political life and the course of the nation from below um and that these are kind of unique historical processes that have unfolded in the course of american history um but yeah i was just i was just trying to i think think about like this you're absolutely right and, and, you know, once, you know, and, and it, it sent the movement into trauma and um, grief, grief, because uh, there's no one to replace King. And Kennedy, Robert, and John, they were not leading King. King was leading them. And that's what Robert Kennedy Jr. is saying. And so in the vacuum, then you get a lot of young black people who say that the only alternative is we must turn to the armed struggle. If the ruling class wants to use arms to destroy our movement and our leaders, we must turn to arms to defend ourselves. But it was a retreat from the people. I mean, I can't describe it any other way. And then after that is destroyed and they go down after, you know, dramatic events and all of that, including MOVE, the MOVE organization, which was part of that, then uh, uh, they create, because remember, part of the civil rights and black power movements was black studies and with black studies, gender studies and yada, yada. So in a lot of ways, there's certain reforms in the academic fields and how knowledge is created and so on. But at the same time, the ruling elite recognizes 
that it needs the power of ideas, the power of images, the power of all of that stuff. And so these universities and their PhD programs and their seminars become ways to produce ideas, you know? And, uh, and so by the time you guys get to college, you're feeling after you graduate, I've not learned a damn thing. Well, the point is you weren't supposed to learn anything because at best you're going to be a functionary of the ruling elite, you know, and at uh, the worst you go somewhere and become a lawyer or whatever and so on. But they were, you were eviscerated. Your soul was taken from you. You were not taught courage. You were taught to be cowards, not to be committed, not to believe in anything. You know, it's my truth or yours or whatever. So, you know, you're lost and turned out. And you know, Jerry, this is why I'm so, I like so much your poetry and Blaze and all of that, because the ruling class and its uh, agents, its hangers on, don't produce poetry. They don't produce art. They're against poetry, they're against art. Uh, and so graffiti is art. Uh, it's, it's an admission of failure. And I, I, I agree with you and I, you know, that's why I, mean, I hope you just keep writing poetry. As long as you write poetry, you, you have a belief in a future. You know, a nation without song, without poetry is a nation that has already failed. Uh, but I, let me, I'll shut my mouth. Um, maybe if no one has anything else to say, we'll read one last comment <laughs> and then we'll end. But do you want to read it? Oh, the future. Yeah. Um, yeah, Future Homestead just says precisely in response to what Doc was saying. In my undergrad in philosophy, we never studied Hegel. We were never presented with a dichotomy between the materialists versus the idealists. Mm. And then Todd says, we need the truth. But yeah, I also liked what you said, Doc, about you made the point about poetry and art and song. Like, because, yeah, it just also reminds me of how Baldwin said he was like in New York. New York, well, he was talking about New York City, but he was like, New York City is, is such a sad place, but it's, and it's like, he made that point where he was like, if, if you're in your society, the poet cannot sing, then it means your society has died. Um, but, but if no one has anything else to say, I think we can end there. It was another very lively, um, invaluable conversation, just like every week, um, and um, we didn't talk about Michelle um, Liu's uh, review of the Lorraine Hansberry play that was put on in Broadway, but we can link it for people to read um, and share it. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
yeah, as always, thank you to everyone who participates with the comments. We really do appreciate the comments a lot. They add a lot to the discussion. Um, thank you to all my friends on the screen, and we'll see you next week for another Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. <laughs>